This episode of the What's Real podcast is dedicated to Marvelous Marvin Hagler. It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 62, which is rather appropriate because in the home base of the What's Real podcast, it is about 62 degrees out. Welcome, everybody, once again to the What's Real Podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my main man, my main man with the plan, the motherfucking plan, if you will, my tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. What's going on, the J? The, the, the J is veed, like he should be, if I can get that out, hate you, vascular and veiny. And I have to say, first and foremost, happy... 316. Happy happy Steve Austin Day. Another weird oh, podcast coincidence. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So very <laughs> pumped up on 316. Hey Ed, what can you say from there for this from the get-go? Well, you know, it's 316, so you're pumped there. And you're also pumped because we have a jam-packed episode of the podcast this Lots week. Lots of shit. Do we ever. Uh, we, of course, are going to continue our march to WrestleMania with our favorite WrestleMania matches of all time. Uh, me and the Jay are going to go through our lists once again and talk about some uh, some of the best matches in WrestleMania history. Of course, we have a brand new movie review. This is one that uh, we've all been waiting for, for for some time. This is coming to America, a.k.a. coming to America 2. Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall are back, and they are on Amazon Prime. So we're going to take a look at that. Uh, Thursday Night Prime is back in its purest form this week with a legendary figure of Thursday Night Prime lore, none other than Chuck Norris. So we're going to take you back to 1979 with The Force of One. And, of course, we're going to have much, much more and some goofs as we do here on the show. And uh, that's not it, man. We have a ton of topics to go through this week. So let's get it started today. In the world of combat sports, unfortunately, we have some sad news. The passing of one of the absolute greatest boxers uh, in the history of the sport, none other than Marvin Hagler, uh, has passed away. Uh, man, Hagler legitimately uh, was one of the most badass human beings uh, of all time. And this is a dude that was uh, a absolutely fantastic boxer in an era filled with them and filled with absolutely brutal fights. Uh, and he was definitely a veteran of those for sure. But without a doubt, uh, one of the best to ever lace up the gloves in the history in, uh, of the uh, sweet science, if you will, the Jay. Uh, first and foremost, as always, rest in peace to Marvin Hagler. Uh, shout out to his friends and family that are grieving at this time. But like you said, hey, Ed, a f- legendary boxer, amazing. Uh, we've mentioned on the podcast before, my dad was a, always a huge boxing fan, was involved in the sport since his youth and raised me on that. I have great memories of growing up with some amazing fights. And I'm, I'm so happy my dad was into it because it's something that I look back fondly of, which 
is weird, I guess, if you're not an alpha male, <laughs> you know, like you know, those <laughs> memories of my dad and his buddies watching dudes kill each other. But like you said, they call it the sweet science for a reason, man. It's a beautiful uh, art form if, if you really know what to, you know, what you're watching. And Marvelous Marvin Hagler did it as good as anyone. One of his best fights of all time. For those that are unfamiliar, watch it as soon as you can. Marvin Hagler versus Thomas Hearns from April in 1985, Caesar's Palace. Round number one is worth watching just alone. I mean, watch the fight if you can, but round one, one of the greatest boxing matches of all time. They just go at it like it's a rocket, Rocky movie for the entire first round just to set the pace of an amazing fight. And which says it all, hey, Ed, that fight in particular was originally billed as the fight, referred to afterward as the war. Yeah, and that's one of my absolute favorite boxing matchups of all time, uh, for sure. Uh, definitely a legendary bout, for, for, you know, as far as uh, not just fans, but, you know, actual boxing historians consider that one to be one of the absolute best fights of all time. Um, and obviously, as the Jay said, you know, rest in peace uh, to the marvelous one, uh, without a doubt. So, uh, and also some other news in the world of professional boxing, a major heavyweight fight, I guess the major heavyweight fight at this point has just been signed. It looks like Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua are going to, uh, get together and look to, uh, you know, unify some titles. So I think it's about time that that happened, uh, in, on, on the heavyweight level of boxing too, because it's kind of made a bit of a resurgence here in the last year or two. And uh, there's, you know, I agree with what you hear from a lot of fighters uh, from the past, that there's just entirely too many titles now in boxing. Uh, so any chance they get to unify them, I think is a good thing. I'm all about that. Yeah, man. And as ESPN.com states, hey, Ed, after months of arduous negotiations between com competing promoters and rival champions, the contract for a two-fight deal between Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua to unify the heavyweight titles has finally been signed. So I am looking forward to it. Uh, as we just stated, man, we're both still boxing fans. It's far and in between in the modern era. But uh, again, we've mentioned in prior podcasts about the fact that the heavyweight division uh, in the last few years has really come up and there's some solid matchups. There's a handful of guys now, even with Ruiz getting thrown in there as the sleeper and making things interesting for a bit. Uh, and, and of course, the classic fight between the, the bronze bomber and um, Tyson Fury doing the undertaker at the la literal last second in that amazing fight. So there's been some stuff in the last few years. And um, with the pandemic, there's not been too much boxing news, especially with what we're talking here, the heavyweight championships and the heavyweight division. So this was a huge announcement. And as a, again, as a boxing fan, I'm really looking forward to this. Same here. And uh, you know, I think that it's safe to say that a lot of the boxing stuff's been put on hold, just like many other things uh, because of COVID and uh, that leads me into our next story here, still in the world of uh, combat sports, but in professional wrestling. Uh, it looks like WWE reportedly wants massive crowds on hand for both nights of WrestleMania 37. Um, according to, uh, this is from comicbook.com, WWE has already confirmed that live fans will be in attendance for both nights of WrestleMania 37 next month, as tickets for the event will go on sale uh as today actually is when they went on sale Tuesday when we record the show, not Friday when you guys can hear it. Uh, however, the maximum attendance for both nights at Raymond James Stadium has yet to be confirmed. Initial reports had expected crowds at around 25,000, 
uh, slightly larger than the 22,000 that filled the stadium for the Super Bowl in the start of February in the same same stadium. Uh, New reports have since come out stating WWE wants the crowds to be even larger with Spectrum Sports 360 reporter John Alba stating on Sunday that WWE now wants the crowds to be as large as 45,000 fans for each night. If it goes as planned, that would give WrestleMania the largest crowd of any sporting or entertainment event since the COVID-19 pandemic began and crowd restrictions were put in place. Um, Which, you know, as soon as I read this, before I even got to that point, I knew that's exactly... Uh, the plan that Vince wanted to have. Uh, he kind of, the WWE kind of did something similar uh, after the tragedy of 9 11. Uh, they were the first ones to have a major sporting event uh, after that event because kind of things were put on hold for good reason at the time. Um, but it's what, you know, no doubt that Vince wants to be the first to be able to do that. Um, you know, we've talked about this endlessly, I feel like, here on the show for the last year of the J. Um, we are so close. Uh, with vaccines coming and, and, you know, people already getting vaccinated, one of which is you, thankfully. So that's good. Yes. Thank um, you. But, you know, I, I still think this is just a bad idea. I don't really see the reason to rush this. I mean, I get it from their perspective because it's money. Um, but other than that, man, and this is going to kind of lead into something else, uh, another story relating to WWE that, that we were going to talk about this week. So I'll, I'll let it lead into that. But uh, your perspective on this, the Jay? Well, the thing is, hey, Ed, I'm not the the end all be all for it. So if if you can, if if the people making these decisions can realistically make this safe and add as many people as they're aiming for in a safe manner, I don't know if there's a way to somehow only provide tickets to people that have been proven to have the vaccine. You still require masks and social distancing and things like that. In some sort of fashion, you can make this safe then I'm all for it. I'm all about the safety. We've talked about that. I don't want to regress, but that goes in with that regression. If you're going to run into it and Vince is all about being the first to do it and you force it and you kind of look for loopholes and different things, but this becomes a super spreader event and sets us back eventually and things like that, then obviously they they should wait. So it's, it's to the people with the knowledge on that, you know, but from the outside looking in, all they can say is from the information I have, if they can do it safely, like I mentioned, somehow prove people were vaccinated that are attending, still have people wearing masks, you know, still be pretty persistent about the rules, and they can safely do it, then I'm I am for it. Uh, and with that being said, um, here we are, same time period that this news is getting announced. Um, it, I'm of the understanding that Vince McMahon is extremely upset. Uh, after seeing a member of the NXT roster um, basically out and about without a mask on um, and kind of blew a gasket about it, but uh, this is why. Now, Fightful Select is reporting significant changes are being made to the March 17th edition of WWE NXT. Some talent have been contacted and told to quarantine, while others have been pulled from the show altogether. This is being done in an effort to prevent a possible outbreak of COVID-19. 
The WWE Performance Center factored into multiple instances last year where the disease spread amongst wrestlers, and with WrestleMania 37 and TakeOver Stand and Deliver less than a month away, the company doesn't want to take any chances, and seems to be trying to send a message that this is not the time to play fast and loose with safety protocols. Concern stems from mandatory meeting with PC trainees that was held on uh, Thursday, March 11th. Several attendees were apparently not taking proper precautions. Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has confirmed the story, tweeting, quote, the NXT COVID outbreak story is accurate. Lots of positive tests, unquote. This comes after a separate Fightful report from yesterday, uh, which would have been last week, uh, about Vince McMahon being concerned about lax COVID safety among staff and talent, prompting him to either directly or indirectly let people know he's unhappy. This week's NXT was set to feature Jordan Devlin returning to start a feud with Santos Escobar, LA Knight's debut match, Swerve Scott versus Leon Ruff, Dexter Loomis versus Austin Theory, and Tommaso Ciampa and Timothy Thatcher versus Imperium. No word yet on specific changes as a result of the COVID crackdown, and they will have uh, more uh, information, which they actually got. Uh, according to Dave Meltzer through the Wrestling Observer, what is known is that on Thursday, they were building and moving rings at the building next door to the Performance Center, and it was said workers were not wearing masks. One report is that there were people who tested positive that both were and weren't there at the time. Talent in quarantine includes both those who tested positive and those who were in contact with them. It's not believed any Raw or SmackDown wrestlers were affected by this outbreak. So it kind of shows you that here we are at this same time period that we mentioned. Um, and they want to have 45,000 people each night at WrestleMania in the stands. But meanwhile, they're dealing with a potential COVID outbreak in NXT, which you see a lot of commingling between rosters and things this time of year around WrestleMania. Uh, and it, this outbreak could potentially affect that NXT stand and deliver event or potentially WrestleMania. So it's kind of weird on one hand where they're like, open it up. We want to get as many fans as possible. And on the other hand, Vince is pissed off that people aren't wearing masks because of outbreaks that could potentially affect the show that he wants to have 45,000 fans for each night. Isn't that kind of <laughs> contradictory? Goes hand in hand with this whole pandemic era has been contradictory. For, That's true. Absolutely. For so many things. I mean, look, you know, the NFL has had their outbreaks, every sport. I mean, we could go on and on NBA, uh, you know, it goes on and on in the WWE. Every brand has had their issues since last year. But again, the, like you mentioned, the key thing in this story, Hey Ed is, is the timing of it. When we're just coming off the story before this of them trying to have one of the biggest live attendance audiences yet to the next story, this one being a breakout within the company and uh, NXT out of all three of the brands seems to have been getting the most COVID cases through the year than, than any of them under the WWE umbrella. Uh, all, all of, you know, the main area is, is Florida that the WWE's coming out of right now. And even main roster and, and it's like Florida. I love you. You're my second state. You know, my family's been going there forever. We have property there. It's my second home, but man, Florida is Florida. (laughs) What can I say? I'll, I'll be nice and, and go that route and just say Florida is Florida workers working without masks and stuff just goes into things I've been hearing from there in that state. But, but again, I digress. It all just goes into the specifics regarding this NXT story. And the one, the other side of it, Hey, too, is that I do like to see the fact that uh, contradictory or not, at least Vince is putting his foot down. It was pissed about this. 
and that they are having guys quarantined due to the potential encounters that we're discussing here. Yeah, I mean, people are lucky that I'm not Vince because at this point in the pandemic, I would be telling people flat out if I get word that you're out here without a mask on and, you know, just being careless, um, you're gone. I'm just, it's like, we shouldn't have to keep teaching these lessons at this point. These guys have been working under these, you know, precautions now for the better part of a year. So like, if you're just not used to doing that by now, then you don't really give a shit about working here or your coworkers or the company uh, or, or even your own safety or your family's safety. It's just beyond ridiculous at this point. These guys are professionals. They should act as such. And if they can't, then, you know, go be a professional somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, it's, we've said it from the door. I'm not going to go into the whole diatribe of what we've said a million times over being a year in this, but we, we, we mentioned, man, you're in a professional setting. How hard is it to wear a mask around? It's the bottom line. Exactly. Couldn't say it any better. So uh, still some more stuff here in the world of professional wrestling. Uh, there's a name here that we don't bring up a whole lot on the show for good reason, I think. Uh, but I'm going to just take you guys to the sportster.com. Uh, Jim Cornette responds to Miro's threat over Penelope, Penelope Ford comments. Uh, I don't know how many of you listening are familiar with this, but uh, I'll just give you the rundown real quick. Things are heating up between Jim Cornette and Miro on the back of Cornette's criticism of Bulgarian star, his on-screen partner, Kip Sabian, and Sabian's real-life girlfriend, Penelope Ford. Uh, Cornette referred to Penelope as a slut on the most recent episode of his podcast, resulting in Miro and Sabian threatening him on Twitter. Um, she also offered a response to... Uh, She's, but it, this is just typical stuff here. But just to give you the rundown, um, this is kind of what he said. Um, he said, uh, besides her, she's probably the only person. Uh, or I'm sorry, I'm mixing all these up. But it, yes. bottom, <laughs> bottom line is Cornette likes to run his mouth about a lot of people. And I get it in the, the framework of professional wrestling. But to flat out come out and say something like this about somebody legitimately is bullshit even on his part he should know better than that i mean this is this is the kind of dumb shit that he's lost jobs for before and it shows that he still has yet to learn his lesson it's also why his main form of employment these days is doing podcasts and shit instead of working with any wrestling company and i know that he could say he could give a fuck about working for them but you know what else is he doing it's not like he has a corporate job with home depot or something like he works in wrestling and he doesn't work in wrestling because he can't shut his fucking mouth. Um, and I love Jim Cornette's mind when it comes to professional wrestling. I think he knows so much stuff and he's been a, an epic part of uh, professional wrestling history, just being a manager and things like that. But this is just another case of him taking something too far, saying something ridiculous to basically get his name out there. And, you know, it, it's kind of just out of line and it's not, I didn't think Miro, uh, like even was that nasty about what he said. Uh, but dude, the one thing that pissed me off that I read, I don't know how much of this you read, um, but seriously, Cornette labeled Miro a quote, great value brand Ryback unquote. And dude, I'll be honest with you then. If that's legitimately what Jim Cornette thinks of, of Rusev or Miro, um, then he doesn't know shit about wrestling because Miro's actually really fucking good. He's significantly better than Ryback. And I mean, I get it. It's just him taking like a low blow shot at somebody by saying that you're a shitty version of a shitty wrestler. Um, but dude, like I have zero problem with Miro. I never 
did have any issues with him. And it's just like Cornette on another one of his stupid hills to die on kind of thing. Well, that's what I was going to have to say. We actually brought it up last week in our wrestling segment, uh, recovering some some talk and side talk from our WrestleMania breakdown and some of our favorite matches where I actually met Jim Cornette and spent some time with him back in 03 with my tryout in OVW where he was one of the main bookers and one of the main guys at OVW at the time. And I going into it, I, I liked him as like a, an in-ring performer as far as a great manager and yeah. things like that. Like we always remembered him in the WWF for, for numerous things, but it stood out. I always liked him with the kind of odd pairing at the time of the tag team of Yokozuna and Owen Hart that he managed. And I, I always, you know, that was like one of those eras of nostalgia and, and that, that tandem and things. So going into it, I just remembered those days and didn't really know what to uh, expect. And he was really cool. You know, he was really cool at the time. Uh, no problems or issues. But again, uh, that was 03, you know, at this point we're in oh, 2021. Yeah. And I barely knew the guy for a week. So just wanted to throw that out there as a personal tidbit here on the show. Nonetheless, yeah, some of the things he said, and, and you mentioned it, Head, and let's just go to the bottom line. I don't need to sit here and tangent about some some drama. But he, you know, breaking the fourth wall and kind of going against the kind of quote unquote work that we always talk about. They're always working. It's always a work and kind of calling Penelope a slut without even knowing her on the podcast and things like that. That's just low blow shit. That's out um, of line. And and just, uh, you know, since you broke it down pretty good, I just brought some, a tidbit up here on the sportster.com and it was kind of funny cause uh, you know, you kind of, broke down the Jim Cornette and Miro issues. So I'll read this. That was a response that Penelope actually had. And she said, I mean, and this is Penelope quote unquote, this isn't the J I mean, he has multiple times, but he lets people fuck his wife while he watches. So what does he think of her? That's true by the way. (laughs) She's probably the only person besides himself. He feels bad for because his little dick can't please her after five blue chews and needs other men to do it for him. So, you know, let's uh, give Penelope some credence on the show uh, and give her little fire back here, which is pretty funny. Because uh, for those that don't know that are listening, there's uh, rumors that Jim Cornette was uh, a cuckold and used to watch that, his wife get banged. Those aren't rumors. Those are true. That's <laughs> Ed definitely. Was in one of them. So let's No, no. Thank, thank Christ. <laughs> God. But, but yeah, more professional wrestling drama. And as always, it, it just uh, is something that's somewhat entertaining on the side here for me that has no involvement to, to be catching some of this shit on Twitter. Yeah, and uh, now we go to the really shitty side of pro wrestling. This is from SoCalUncensored.com. Uh, former professional wrestler Joey Ryan drops most lawsuits, releases statement on canceled charity wrestling event. So on Tuesday, March 2nd, a wrestling event called Wrestling for Women's Charity happened in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, and it was happening in Knoxville, Tennessee, and it was announced that day. And the event instantly received backlash as Joey Ryan, who had filed lawsuits against a number of women who accused him of sexual misconduct during last summer's speaking out movement in professional wrestling, was featured on the event's flyer. The same day, it came out that Ryan dismissed one of his lawsuits, one that he had already received a default judgment on. Uh, They reached out to Ryan for a statement on his involvement with the charity and the lawsuit dismissal. Uh, He issued a full statement where he states that he is dropping the majority of the lawsuits he filed in wake of the speaking out movement, including the lawsuit that he was granted a default judgment in when the defendant never responded to the suit. 
In his statement, he said that he will he is still undecided on if he will drop his lawsuit against former Ring of Honor wrestler Pele Primo and that he is not dropping his lawsuit against Impact Wrestling. Uh, in regards to the Impact Wrestling suit, Ryan states, stated, breach of contract is an entirely different issue. I know wrestling doesn't have a union or really anybody to look out for us in a contract negotiation, but they have forced wrestlers to sit at home after disputes and wait out contracts with threats of breach. It would set a bad precedent to not hold them accountable for their side of the same contracts. Uh, as for his involvement in the Wrestling for Women's Charity event scheduled on March 20th, 21, uh, Ryan disputes that he is trying to return to wrestling and that none of the narratives going around about the event are true. He claims that he agreed to the show uh, only for closure on the condition he was announced and not a surprise participant. As for Ryan's bar wrestling promotion handling the ticket sales, Ryan states that the account was only used for convenience as has, as it has preferred status for quicker event approvals. Um, so here is basically, uh, I guess, the full statement. Uh, I can read this. I guess this is the last time we'll ever give this dude a word on the show. But yes, there have been a lot of narratives going around concerning the event announced on Tuesday, and none of them are true. I'm not trying to come back to wrestling. Uh, when it was presented to me uh, and the idea that I could wrestle a good friend as a way to go out and gain some closure, it sounded great. I agreed to help because of the delicacy of my involvement in two conditions. One, I couldn't be used as a surprise the day of the event. We needed to be transparent to fans and other wrestlers about my participation. And two, that 100% of the proceeds go to charity. We used Bar Wrestling's brown paper tickets account for convenience since the account already existed and as preferred status for quicker event approvals. It's obvious now that Wrestling Twitter wasn't ready for that. I know that wrestling is full of carnies who think that wrestling is full of carnies, but I assure you there was nothing more to it. The blessing in disguise, as it turns out, that is to say the reaction to the announcement was the closure I needed. I felt, I don't know, indifferent about the reception. I was actually a little jazzed that I'm still over enough to trend on Twitter, which shows exactly where my priorities were. However, indifferent is honestly how I felt about performing since the day after All In. I've also spent the past week or so reflecting on my defamation lawsuits and have decided to drop them for the most part, including the ones that I've already won by default. There's a misconception that I'm suing everyone. I'm not. I filed lawsuits against the four women who accused me of an actual crime, one person who misreported information and later admitted it, and one person who made up stories about me. The only reason I filed any lawsuits was for some semblance of due process that I believe is due to persons accused of what I was accused of instead of getting tried in the court of public opinion. I wanted to have all of the defendants in the lawsuits respond to the complaints so that they could explain why they made false statements and explain the evidence that exists against their claims. Uh, a default judgment does not allow for the due process that I was seeking because the defendants did not want to participate, so I'm seeking to dismiss those cases. I was also hoping the lawsuits would permit an investigation uh, through what is called the discovery phase and a lawsuit, which I wasn't afforded because none of the accusers went to the police and Impact Wrestling decided to terminate our contract without so much consulting me or conducting any investigation as mutually agreed upon in the terms before they terminated it. For full transparency, I'm leaving the Impact Wrestling lawsuit open. Breach of contact contract is an entirely different issue. Um, and I kind of mentioned what he already said there. Uh, it goes on and on and on, obviously. But, I mean, bottom line is here is like Joey Ryan's still kind of a shitty human being, is still deflecting a lot of the blame 
that, uh, you know, for a lot of this stuff on, on other things other than himself while trying to act like he's going through like this miraculous growth period in his life. Um, bottom line though, I just think the dude is upset that his career has essentially been ended. Um, but you know, you, you play stupid games, the J you win stupid prizes, right? Uh, and at the end of the day, hey, you know, it's he said, she said, of course, we're the outside looking in. There's not too many th- things of, you know, information that point one way or the another at this point, like he's kind of stating there's no like police reports. He hasn't been arrested and things like that. So as they say, you know, at the end of the day, you know, innocent until proven guilty from, from my opinion, from research over this time period and things I've seen, uh, it doesn't seem like he's a great dude. Like you said, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I, I, try not to victim shame and things like that. So uh, I don't know enough about it to touch it, you know, but, but reading this shit, I mean, it was just ridiculous and, and just so much, you know, stupid irony with this goose. Like for those listening that, that don't or with this goof, I should say for those listening that don't know who Joey Ryan is, he's an independent professional wrestler that got pretty popular just because he had a very specific gimmick where he basically used his penis in his matches as if it was like this, I seen somebody bring this up and I thought this is a great point, but they were like, so basically a dude who was accused of a lot of improprieties through the years with women, um, basically figured out how to, to have a gimmick where he can have like stick women's hands down his pants and he could grope them in a wrestling match. And it was part of the, part of his gimmick. And yeah. That's pretty fucking disturbing. Looking back on it now. Um, and it kind of shows you why, like, maybe there's not really a place for that kind of shit in wrestling. Even though a lot of people thought that stuff was funny, it went super viral. I got a kick out of some of it. But just even looking back on it, it's like really, you know, like you, you really look at it again because it's just like really shitty. Yeah. And full circle on the podcast, as always, we pooped on Jim Cornette a little bit in the last segment. So to his credit, he always hated Joey Ryan. So let's throw that yeah, out there that's true. with yeah. Jim Cornette's credit. And then, yeah, just to end it, hey, and I just thought, uh, again, with the irony swirling here that this all erupted with him trying to come back and do one last match with all these lawsuits and, you know, these situations going on around him, that his involvement in a wrestling for women's charity event is what yeah. this whole thing is surrounding. So That's, it's like full circle with the irony with the penis boy. I mean, dude, it's like, you want to talk about tone deaf? Like, holy shit. Like, what did Crazy. you think was going to happen? Like, people were going to like, oh, no, Joey Ryan's a great dude. Like, it's, yeah. you know what I mean? It's it's just awful. But, uh, and one more thing here that's uh, wrestling related that I thought would be of uh, pretty good conversation here on the show is uh, the WWE does these top 10 lists and they have a a show uh, tied around it on the WWE network where they do all kinds of top 10 lists. And it just so happened the Jay that they were doing one that kind of coincides with something we've been doing here on the show. And what they did was they had a top 10 list of their top 10 WrestleMania main events of all time. Okay. Now, I'm going to just go down the list here and read them off. And then uh, you can give me your opinion on the list, I guess, when it's over. How about that? Sound good? Sure. Yeah. All right. So number 10, Brock Lesnar versus Kurt Angle from WrestleMania 19. Number nine, Hulk Hogan versus Ultimate Warrior from WrestleMania 6. Eight was Randy Orton versus Bautista versus Daniel Bryan at WrestleMania 30. Number seven, Brock Lesnar versus Roman Reigns at WrestleMania 31. 
Six is The Rock versus Stone Cold Steve Austin from WrestleMania 15. Number five was Ronda Rousey versus Becky Lynch versus Charlotte Flair from WrestleMania 35. Number four, Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels, WrestleMania 12 Iron Man match. Number three, Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels from WrestleMania 26. Number two, Hulk Hogan versus Andre from WrestleMania 3. And the number one match, main event match of all time at WrestleMania, according to WWE, is from WrestleMania 28, and it is John Cena versus The Rock. So the J, uh, agreements, disagreements, what do you think here? Uh, let's just go to the doozies, hate ya. Uh, first being, how, how are you going to put on The Rock versus Stone Cold WrestleMania 15, which isn't a bad match compared to what you brought up. It's not their best one. Yeah. It's WrestleMania 17. Much better match, I feel Much like. better match. So that, that's one thing I thought of. Um, of course, uh, another kind of easy cop-out because I don't want to break it down. We're already going to be talking about a lot of uh, favorite WrestleMania matches later on in the podcast here, so I don't want to digress. My, my list would be a lot different in a lot of ways. And also, I always say in these lists, I, I hate the, the the numerical kind of countdown to like what's number one and not two, I, you know, just because it's so subjective. But let's just go there because that's what they did. And The Rock vs. Cena from WrestleMania 28 being the top WrestleMania main event of all time. Got to disagree with that. Hey, Ed, uh, great match. Um, something that isn't maybe going to happen ever again as far as the buildup and things, the way they did that, like the year-long buildup. Two humongous stars, two of the biggest of all time, probably in the top five as pop, as far as like pop culture popularity and stuff. So there's a lot to it. I get, you know, there's an argument, uh, just the Jay's opinion. Um, I'm, I'm more, you know, kind of look at the more wrestling savvy, even if it's the WWE style main events. But yeah, my, my list would have been significantly different, uh, but definitely interesting to kind of check out with the WWE and whoever put this together, whether it's their writers or a certain committee or what, what, what their thoughts were. But, but yeah, I, I had a lot of issues with different things on it. Dude. Okay. So I'm not going to break down the whole list, but I'm just going to bring up something here that I think totally kills the credibility of this whole thing. Right. And I'm going to do that by framing the top three matches they have here. So just to repeat, yeah, it's a good way to do it. Number one is rock versus Cena from WrestleMania 28, which you already mentioned uh, number. Uh, so that's okay. I would classify that as a really good match. It's nowhere near the top WrestleMania match of all time. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. Then you have number two, Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant, which we spoke about last week on our WrestleMania segment. Uh, not even a good match at all. Um, it's the most important match in WrestleMania history. Would you That's agree the with thing. those it, two it, statements? Yeah, it becomes a criteria thing. Almost. Okay. Continue, Hayo. Now, number three. The Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels from WrestleMania 26. This is a match considered by many to not just be the greatest WrestleMania match of all time. They consider this to be the greatest American wrestling match of all time. Um, a lot of people might consider this the Undertaker's best match or even Shawn Michaels' best match. Would you disagree with anything that I just said there? No. Okay. How the hell do these line up as 3-2-1 or 1-2-3? So you have... Number th the third one might be considered to be the greatest match on American soil of all time by a lot of people. Number two, most people wouldn't even consider it a good match, but everybody pretty much that knows wrestling would, um, you know, at least uh, qualify it as being the most important or one of the absolutely most important matches of all time. And then you have one, which is a modern day main event. It has 
two guys that they still happily do business with. It's a good match, not a particularly great match. And it's not even one of the most memorable matches of all time. It's just, it was a very big deal at the time. But it's just how these three matches themselves fit in is one, two, three, three, two, one. Make, it, it makes no sense. And it literally just makes this list completely devoid of credibility to me. Yeah, I'm with you because that, with that Undertaker-Michaels match, as far as what I was alluding to in my initial description with the in-ring, uh, albeit WWE-style, like top-tier in-ring stuff, Hulk Hogan versus Andre and Roxena doesn't fit that. But if they're going to argue that they're talking about the spectacle, the box yes. office, yep, yep. What, what they grossed and that sort of thing, then you're in, again, it's a criteria thing. So uh, that's why these lists are goofy and it's subjective, but it was definitely worth bringing up here at this portion of the segment. And I definitely thought it was interesting to check out whenever they do pop up with, with lists like this, especially leading into mania and full, full tilt mania season. That we're well, and I thought it was kind of crazy too, that it just so happened to coincide with what we're doing here on the show with breaking yeah, our, exactly. our WrestleMania yes. favorite matches. So right. uh, let's see if we could do a better job at it. And so far I'd say we are. So yeah, kind of um, all over the place with that list. Exactly. But now we're going to get into something uh, that's pretty like I just thought this was going to be something we would mention, maybe talk a little bit about. But this has absolutely exploded. And I'm talking about NFL and its free agency time period here, which just started. And it has gone completely bonkers. Okay, so I'm just going to give a breakdown and we could, you know, mention what we think about these Uh, Buffalo's made a couple signings Uh, there. A lot of these are re-signings and stuff like that. But um, check this one out, the Jay. This one just happened, too, that I didn't even know about till I started looking here on the site. The Miami Dolphins have signed Jacoby Brissett to a one year, five million dollar contract. So they got another quarterback in the room there. Uh, they signed Malcolm Brown running back from uh, the Rams. Uh, they got a trade for Isaiah Wilson. So they got a new lineman uh, linebacker acquired in another trade uh, from Tennessee. So, you know, Miami's already starting off pretty quick there. I'm a little surprised to see them sign another quarterback with Jacoby Brissett. Just shows you how they're viewing Tua kind of. You know, I mean, they they were saying even with Miami posting some decent wins and kind of being a sleeper team uh, out of nowhere this season overall, I would say uh, the the quarterback play from Tua. And again, he was a straight up rookie, you know, getting thrown in there. But it was kind of controversial at the time. Ryan Fitzpatrick wasn't too happy about being replaced and things like that. So. So, yeah, it's definitely interesting to see them sign Brissett. And, dude, this has been by far right here the most interesting development, I think, in the last day. Um, So news broke that the New England Patriots were re-signing Cam Newton to a one-year deal worth about $13.5 million. And that, uh, you know, people were surprised that that, that, you know, they were going to bring him back, right? Then listen to this. They went on a spree. They've (laughs) since signed uh, wide receivers Nelson Aguilar and Kendrick Bourne. Two tight ends, big ticket tight ends in Hunter Henry and Jonu Smith from the Titans. Offensive tackle Trent Brown. Defensive end at Dietrich Weitz Jr. Defensive tackle Davon Gashaw. Defensive lineman Henry Anderson. Linebacker Matt Judon from the uh, Baltimore Ravens to a four-year $56 million deal. Cornerback Justin Bethel, three-year contract. Safety Jalen Mills, four-year $24 million contract. So, uh, Brady might not be there anymore, the Jay, but I have a funny feeling that Belichick is starting to load up 
on everything else and kind of seeing, you know, like what kind of a team he could put together here. Well, you know, Robert Kraft put all that behind him as we covered on the, the podcast. And that, that's that Orchids of Asia day spa money, man. <laughs> Like he just he just dropped it, but yeah, yeah I was since, cracking up. Like holy since shit, he can't, hit the, he can't hit the old rubbing tugs as much anymore, so he might as well throw all that money into free agency. Yeah, dude, like you mentioned, the big one is just the double high end tight ends: Hunter Henry and Jonu Smith, uh, three and four year deals. Jonu for fifty million, Hunter Henry's twenty five million fully guaranteed, and Jonu's thirty one point two five million fully guaranteed. Yeah, that's crazy, that's, man. That's crazy money to begin with. Um, a team that everybody has been talking about for the last couple of years in free agency because they have so much money available is the New York Jets. They started uh, even signing some players. They uh, franchise tagged safety Marcus May. They signed linebacker Gerard Davis to a one-year $7 million deal. Defensive end Carl Lawson and the Tennessee wideout Corey Davis to a three-year $37 million contract. Um, so they're trying to bring in some talent. Unfortunately, I don't think it's enough yet for them to even be remotely significantly better at all. No, the Jets, I think they're going to have the symphony hosting a lot in the upcoming power rankings in the fall. Hey, Ed. Baltimore has signed new offensive guard Kevin Zeitler to a three-year $22 million deal. Defensive end Tyus Bowser. Defensive end Pernell McPhee re-signed. They re-signed defensive tackle Justin Ellis and re-signed Derek Wolf. So nothing too crazy. Uh, they, they've lost some players, so they're basically just trying to bring back what they've lost. So I don't think these make a shift one way or another for Baltimore. No, because they signed a lot of dudes uh, last season, too, yeah. during the season. So, Not much of a change as of yet, at least not in the major uh, you know, uh, positions. Um, one that's really surprising for me was the Cincinnati Bengals, man, and one of them really hurts for us. So this is what they got so far. They re-signed uh, backup quarterback Brandon Allen for a year. They went out and signed a four-year, $60 million deal with defensive end Trey Hendrickson, uh, who was the sack master for the New Orleans Saints this past season. They signed cornerbacks Chidobi Awuzi uh, to a three-year $21 million deal. And this one sucks, man. Yeah, he's Mike good. Hilton, four-year, $24 million deal. Good for him. Uh, why anybody would want to play for Cincinnati, I have no idea. Um, so that's probably not going to be too kind to him. But, man, Cincinnati is trying to to, to make some improvements, because at least to the defense, because they're spending some money there. As they say, hey, uh, 24 million reasons why. That's it. Uh, Cleveland, we've seen minimal movement. They signed John Johnson, uh, safety, to a three-year $33 million deal and a one-year $4 million deal with defensive end Takaris McKinley. So just kind of some more pieces in there for the Browns, nothing too crazy. Um, our, our Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, we've re-signed Ray Ray McLeod to a one-year deal. I think that's a good move. He was on uh, special Ray. teams, uh, offensive tackle, Zach Banner, uh, one year, or I'm sorry, a two year, $9.5 million deal. Um, which I think is a smart deal for the Steelers. They signed a one-year contract with BJ Finney. So they'll be bringing him back from two years ago, which I think is a good move. And one move that I'm really happy about, they signed a two-year $9 million deal with returning cornerback Cameron Sutton. 
Um, you know, what can you say? We weren't expecting a whole lot. So at least they're attempting to keep some guys and to get some pieces in there to, to shore up the offensive line. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we, we lost a couple guys. I don't know if you're going to get into that, but. Oh, yeah, I will see them keeping some. <laughs> yeah. Um, dude, the Texans, um, are making Lots. a ton of moves, dude. Yeah. We saw Tyrod Taylor. So they got a potential new starting quarterback. If you know, Deshaun Watson gets traded, um, Mark Ingram running back, uh, formerly of the Ravens has signed a one-year deal wide receiver, Andre Roberts, one year or two year deal, 5.95 million offensive tackle. Marcus cannon acquired from the new England Patriots offensive guard, Justin McCray on a two year, $4 million deal. Offensive lineman, Justin Britt on a one year deal, uh, defensive end Shaq Lawson, uh, acquired, uh, from a trade with the Miami dolphins. Defensive end Derek Rivers on a one-year deal. Malik Collins, defensive tackle on a one-year deal. Uh, linebacker Camu uh, Grugler-Hill Hill signed to a one-year deal. Uh, this is one that I don't think people realize how big of a deal this one might be because this dude was really good for the Cardinals. They got linebacker Christian Kirksey to a one-year $4.5 million deal, which he would, I think, I think would have been a really good replacement for Bud Dupree if the Steelers could have grabbed him. Um, and they got a, another cornerback that was tied to the Steelers too, as uh, Vernon Hargraves the third got a one year deal, yeah. and safety Terrence Brooks on a two million dollar deal for one year. So Houston's Lots trying to bring some talent in there. Uh, they need to. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Carson Wentz is the only move for the Colts. Uh, Jacksonville's made a bunch of moves too, dude. And there's one of these that I was really surprised about that they don't even have on the list yet, and I'll get to that in a moment, but. Uh, one of these is a Steeler, Tyson Alualu, uh, a two-year, $6 million deal. Kind of hard for me to believe that the Steelers couldn't have at least tried to match that. Um, yeah. But they'll probably get a compensation, you know, like a draft pick for it. Um, they signed Carlos Hyde on a two-year, $6 million contract, which is another guy I think would have really benefited the Steelers to try and get for that price. Uh, they got Jamal Agnew, wide receiver, Philip Dorsett from uh, the Patriots, uh, oh, this is the one that I was surprised. A uh, a two million or a two year deal with Marvin Jones Jr., the receiver from Detroit, uh, who I think is a pretty good player. Offensive tackle Cam Robinson, offensive guard Tyler Shatley, Dwayne Smoot, defensive end. Uh, another defensive end, Jihad Ward, defensive tackle Malcolm Brown. They got in a trade from the Saints. Uh, Roy Robertson Harris, a defensive tackle on a three year deal. Sidney Jones, cornerback. Shaquille Griffin. Uh, signing a three-year, $44 million deal with Jacksonville, uh, obviously to getting him out of um, Tampa. Uh, Rudy Ford, safety, and Rayshon Jenkins, another safety. So Jacksonville trying to load up from being one of the worst teams in the league last year too, man. Yeah, it makes sense. That's what you got to do if you want to compete. It's professional football, so you shouldn't lay down and just be shitty. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, but just to run through some more, the Tennessee Titans signed Bud Dupree to a five-year, $85 million contract. And to think the Jay, people thought the Steelers were going to be able to somehow yeah, keep thir- it. $35 million guaranteed. That ain't happening in Pittsburgh. Not at all. Um, the Kansas City Chiefs, um, they took that fucking Super Bowl to heart, man. They went out and signed Joe Thune, a five-year contract worth $80 million after this last week just waiving some of their offensive linemen. And they resign and they resign Chaco Tarl- Taco Charlton, uh, the defensive end. But yeah, man, uh, Kansas City is not taking that too lightly. They're making sure to keep Mahomes uh, protected. 
Yeah. He makes me hungry too. Hey, yet I must say. Who? Taco Charlton. Old taco. It is Tuesday. I, lo- isn't I it? love tacos. Yep. Taco Tuesday, baby. Uh, Yannick Nagal, uh, who was involved in a big trade uh, from Jacksonville last year to Baltimore, didn't have the greatest season with Baltimore, but it still resulted in a two-year contract worth $26 million signing with the Las Vegas Raiders. I think that's a pretty good move for them. Um, And dude, this is the one that's kind of surprising to me, the Chargers, okay? So they have a really good quarterback in Justin Herbert. Well, they're apparently taking that to heart too because they went out and signed the best center uh, available in free agency, former Pittsburgh native uh, from the Green Green Bay Packers. Corey Lindsay signed a five-year, $62 million contract that will pay him $26 million over the first two years. They've also uh, re-signed their kicker, Michael Badgley, and they re-signed cornerback Michael Davis. So the Chargers at least trying to uh, keep their quarterback protected as well. Smart. That's what Pittsburgh's going to need to do, man. we got to focus on that line, just speaking of which. Absolutely. And uh, just a couple more teams here. Uh, the New York Giants uh, agree to a two-year, $6 million deal with Devontae Booker running back. They signed former Cincinnati Bengal receiver John Ross to a one-year, $2.5 million contract. That would have been another contract I wouldn't mind seeing the Steelers take on because I think John Ross is pretty good. And this one really surprised me. They franchise-tagged Leonard Williams, um, and then the team later agreed on a three-year, $63 million deal. Now, I don't really understand this, but dude, coming into this, like this week, uh, the Giants had less money available than the Steelers did. So I don't know how they're managing to pull this off. Um, and the uh, one other note that I wanted to make, dude, and I don't like the team at all, but I think this is an actual great move on their part. I don't know if you saw this one, but the Washington football team, agreed to a one-year $10 million deal with quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick. Uh, I think that makes them better than they were last year uh, from the quarterback position, and they have a damn good defense. So don't be surprised if Washington kind of comes out of nowhere in the NFC next year. And and speaking of that, did Alex Smith retire, or is he just planning to be the backup at this point? He was just uh, released. Oh, okay. So he got released. I didn't see that. So and and he I, didn't get picked up yet. Hale, as no, of recording, he did, okay. he did not. And there was also one other one that I wanted to mention. There's a few more teams, nothing really of significance between them, but uh, Andy Dalton signed a one year, $10 million contract with the Chicago bears. So, uh, you know, uh, either the red rifle, uh, it looks like he might end up being the starter next year if they don't make any more quarterback moves, which is crazy to think of. Well, as you always mentioned, Hey, you know, just another, pretty much mediocre quarterback within the Chicago Bears franchise. Yeah, it kind of is what it is. So, you know, we'll obviously keep you guys updated as the weeks go by with NFL free agency, but there's a ton of action early on that I thought was pretty interesting. And uh, we are about to take a commercial break, but we have one more thing we wanted to talk about, and that is the list of the 2021 Oscar nominees uh, was released today. And, uh, dude, it's pretty weird, to be honest with you. A lot Uh, of snubs again, I felt. Yeah, and a lot of weirdness because, basically, there weren't a lot of movies, at least released in theater last year. So it was kind of interesting to see where they were going to go with this. So here's the gist. I'm I'm not going to go through everything, but I'm going to talk the major categories. Best Picture, we have The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, which we reviewed here on the show, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, which I actually really want to see. Sound of Metal, 
and another one we reviewed here on the show, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Um, what did you think about these, the Jay? Surprising, not surprising, weird, not weird? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was not surprising for the Oscars. I mean, this is typical Oscar kind of fair in my opinion, with with some of their choices from the past and being really into it. You can kind of, not like I was predicting exactly what they were going to pick, but you read some of these and you're like, doesn't surprise me. Uh, you know, like you said, I saw Judas. Uh, I want to see Nomadland. Uh, I, I haven't got to that yet. Promising Young Woman, like you said, I'm interested in. It's not on anything streaming yet. Sound of Metal, I did actually watch. It was pretty good. That that did surprise me. I was surprised that was Dude, what the is picture that? though. So it's about a, a a drummer for a metal band that begins going deaf is basically what it. Wow, that really okay. Now I do know. And what it's that on. Is, and I'm really. It's shocked. on Amazon. That's, yeah. And wow. As we mentioned, the trial of the Chicago Seven. I mean, I agree. That was one of my picks for for film of the year. You know. So so yeah, not not the most surprising, but again, snub wise, like off the bat was the Five Bloods. I mean, we love that. Yeah. I mean, that was pissed that wasn't on there and i'm sure there's a, a few others i can think of but that again that's the usual thing especially as the jay always i rollingly says hey you know it's it's subjective at the end of the day even if it's the oscars uh one really big surprise for a lot of people and me too as well actress in a supporting role uh you know maria baklova who was his assistant and Borat's subsequent movie film got a nominee, which she's really good in it. But I was just really yeah. surprised that, they, that that was one that they, you know, that they got. Um, also, actor in a supporting role. Um, this doesn't make sense to me either. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Daniel Kaluuya uh, for Judas and the Black Messiah got nominated. And so did Lakeith Stanfield. So, yeah, which, so one of them would be the lead. Yeah, you would think one of them would be the lead, right? Like that would make sense. But I'm I'm pulling for Lakeith because I want that dude to win an Oscar. I'm a huge fan of his. I think he's a great actor. Yeah, uh, sorry but, to bother you, but dude, Daniel Kaluuya, that's one. That's his best role. So I mean, I wouldn't argue with that one either. Um, but I just thought that was really strange that you know they they both got up for supporting role. So I'm like, again, it's. Always the correlation on the podcast. Hey, Ed, just like the WrestleMania list. Like, what's the criteria? Can we see that so that we understand this shit? And, okay, now let me throw this to you real quick. Actor in a leading role. We have Riz Ahmad for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Gary Oldman and Mank, and Steven Yoon for Minari. Now let me ask you, the Jay, sitting here today, who wins this and why do they win it? Oh, you know what's really hard for me to say, hey, yeah, dude, is, I think I think this is super easy. Okay, because I was gonna say I've only seen one of the films, and, so and I don't even me, think. But you're you're kind of saying from the outside looking in, not even having to see them. Yep, you don't have to see anything. So I would guess from is, your line of thinking, Gary Oldman. Nope. Anthony Hopkins. Nope. Chadwick Boseman. Yep. Gotcha. Because he's no longer with us. Yeah, now, the posthumous. I I just think that's what they're gonna do. That's what that says. That reading these and seeing these, I'm like, well, that's they're just gonna. It's it's a posthumous uh, Oscar. Well, he he won the uh, the Golden Globe, right? I think so, but don't yeah, hold me on that. I'm pretty, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure he did. Um, so. so that's just my line of thinking here, and and it's almost similar here. Actress in a leading role, we have Viola Davis in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, Andrew Day for the United States versus Billy Holiday, Vanessa Kirby, Pieces of a Woman, Francis McDormand from Nomadland, 
and Carrie Mulligan from Promising Young Woman. Um, now, Andrew Day won the Golden Globe for the United States versus Billie Holiday. But to me, because it's the Oscars and the Academy, uh, I imagine just Frances McDormand's going to get it because she's they love her. She's a great actress, so it's not her fault. But I just think this is totally just earmarked for her to win unless they just go with uh, Andrew Day. And as usual, like talking a lot about this, I'm like, damn, I got a lot of films to see because like you said, it's like without the, the theater experience availability throughout the year and all these different streaming ser- you know, services and channels, I just can't keep up on what is even like actual Oscar uh, caliber stuff on my own, even as in the movies as I am, just because I have so many wide interests, you know, yeah. so just reading through these, I'm like, yeah, I I heard something about this one. I heard a little bit about this one. I know this one. I haven't seen it yet. So now I'm going to, I'm going to have to dive in and do some, some research. Hey, you know, get some film watching in before the actual Oscar show. Yeah. I think I need to do that too. Uh, Especially too, because for the first time, this is going to be, it's, it's actually easier to do that. Like you don't have to run to theaters and stuff to see a lot. That's what I mean. I'm like, you know, I definitely, I've been meaning to get to Mank. I haven't yet. Nomadland. I haven't yet. And it's all on streaming services I have right now. So I got to start making a a list of the old iPhone here. Yeah. You and me both, man. But we have to take a quick commercial break, but before we do that, I just wanted to mention something. We don't cover a lot of this here on the show, but it's just a personal thing. Uh, Just a quick shout out to Patrick Ewing and the Georgetown Hoyas as they were picked to be the last team in the Big East this year. And not only did that not happen, they ended up winning the Big East, and now they are in the NCAA tournament. So shout out to Patrick Ewing, one of my absolute favorite players of all time, being a huge Knicks fan. Uh, There's nobody more appropriate in my mind to be the coach of the Georgetown Hoyas. So I'm super excited for him, and I'm glad they were able to pull that off because I think that's an absolutely awesome moment for him, and kudos to him for doing it. So I love Patrick Uh, Ewing, man. So Yeah, I I was going to say, I love bring that up. Yeah, I love Ewing too. And since you did that hit yet, Penn State football rules. (laughs) But uh, that's it. We're going to take a quick commercial break, guys. And when we come back, we're going to check out the brand new Eddie Murphy Arsenio Hall sequel coming to America. So we'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. Don't forget to join us next week here on the What's Real podcast for episode 63. We're going to take a look at more of Hey Ed and the Jays' favorite WrestleMania matches of all time. We're also going to have a preview of the WWE Fastlane pay-per-view. Also, another brand new review for the coming-of-age documentary, Kid 90. And also on Thursday Night Prime, Murphy's Law with Chuck Bronson from 1986. All this and more next week on episode 63 of the What's Real podcast. Yeah, yeah. Bobby Session Young, hold up. Yeah, yeah. Coming to America, now it's coming to me. I'm not regular, understanding the kings. Channel my father while I was speaking to you. And we're back here on the show, and it is time to look into one of, I would say, our longest-awaited movies, uh, considering we had to wait 
damn near, you know, <laughs> 30 years to get another one. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to take a look at the brand new Eddie Murphy Arsenio Hall comedy sequel, if you will, coming to America. And I didn't realize that was even the title of this until I watched the movie. I thought it was just coming to America, too. Uh, so it's kind of weird that there are two coming to Americas, but it's coming the number two the, the new miracle. Yeah. The numeral one. So this time Prince Akeem Jafar is set to become King of Zamunda when he discovers he has a son. He never knew about in America, a street savvy Queens native named Lavelle honoring his father, his Royal father's dying wish to groom his son uh, as the crown prince. Akeem and Semi set off to America once again. Um, now, of course, this time, not only do you have uh, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, you have uh, newcomer Jermaine Fowler playing Lavelle. You have SNL alum, uh, alums, I should say, Leslie Jones, Tracy Morgan in here as well. Wesley Snipes is General Easy. Uh, James Earl Jones reprising his role of King Jaffer. Uh Cleo McDowell returns, John Amos himself uh, from the original movie. Um, playing freaking Wesley Snipes' daughter in this is Tiana Taylor. Jesus Christ, I'll say that. Yeah, hey, uh, sis. Yeah, man. Louis Anderson shows up again. Uh, Trevor Noah, Michael Blackson, who's hilarious in this. Um, just an overall star-studded cast. Uh, even Salt and Peppa show up in this one. Gladys yeah. Knight plays herself in this one. Rick Ross shows up in this one. Uh, a lot of people, you know, doing their roles from the original movie. Also, Dikembe Mutombo, Colin Jost from Saturday Night Live, John Legend, um, you know, a bunch of Eddie Murphy's children are in this movie, which is also kind of cool. I don't even know if you realize that. I had to read about it after the fact to know no, it was them. No, I don't know. I don't know what his kids look like. Um, so basically, this is based, you know, from, you know, the sequel to the original 1989 uh, John Landis comedy with Eddie Murphy. Um, and, you know, you're you're basically reintroduced to all the characters this time around and uh, with their up to current day, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the synopsis. And there there are mild spoilers here, nothing that's going to ruin the movie. Uh, but James Earl Jones character is King Joe Fair is kind of on his deathbed and he's telling, uh, you know, uh, King Joffrey or I should say the prince. Uh, and Eddie Murphy that he needs to have a son uh, or he can't properly turn over the kingdom to him. Now in the movie as well, Eddie Murphy has a band of daughters who have been trained in martial arts and are pretty badass in and of themselves uh, with his oldest daughter kind of being upset that she's not being handed the kingdom as she feels that she's, you know, the rightful person to, to do so. Real quick, by the way, that makes sense too with the first one because they like trained in in martial arts. You know, he yeah. and Arsenio Hall's character from the first one are like doing the stick work and stuff. So, and know, I like that parallel aspect. And one of the main points in this movie is kind of like you know, in the original movie, Eddie Murphy's character was able to find his his wife because he disobeyed his father and kind of did things his own way. And they even have that scene in, in the original, too, where his mother kind of said, like, you know, don't worry about your dad. I, you know, I believe in what you're doing kind of a thing. And they have kind of a, a twist on that in this where, you know, Eddie Murphy kind of his character has to Prince Akeem, I should say, uh, has to 
maybe do things a little bit differently than his father would have in, in the same position. So there's the whole story basically of him meeting his son for the first time. They uh, have a whole sequence introducing uh, Leslie Jones's character of Mary Johnson, uh, who wasn't in the original movie, but they made her now as a piece of the original film. I liked how they went back and did that. Um, there was even some stuff. I didn't know this, but they show you some stuff at the beginning from the original movie. Uh, and I don't know if you know this or not, the Jay, that's the only footage from the original movie. Everything that they use, oh, yeah. Yeah. even the scenes from the clubs, like there's a couple parts that I thought they actually used original footage from the movie, but they didn't. They filmed new footage and they used the, uh, the aging technology, very similar to what was used by Martin Scorsese in the Irishman yeah, on, uh, cool. to make them look younger and everything. I thought that was great. Um, but ultimately with this one, I'll, I'll say this, um, is it better than the original? Nowhere even close. Um, is it good? I will say it's not bad. Um, there's a lot of funny stuff. I thought Leslie Jones was great in this one. Um, you know, I thought that, uh, you know, the typical stuff with Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, uh, I thought Jermaine Fowler did pretty well as Lavelle. Um, Tracy Morgan was great. Wesley Snipes was great. Like, you know, the, the, you got a lot of fun performances from everybody in this one. But unfortunately for me, I just didn't think this story really had a lot of strength to it, which was disappointing after waiting almost 30 years for a movie like this. They, they have a pretty good general premise, but it's pretty paper thin other than that. And, you know, like I said, it's not bad, but it just because of that, it just can't get to the level that you want it to get to, unfortunately. Well, so for some initial notes from the J hate y'all number one, first and foremost, as we're mentioning here, 30 years later to have the entire original cast come back down to J Edward, um, James Earl Jones still being alive and capable to do some acting in this is incredible. Yep. You know, like my wife and I watched this together and we were like looking for certain people, you know, like, of course, the King's right hand man that did the hilarious like singing in the first one. Oh, yeah. He was that really actor good. was yeah. back and he yep. was good in it. And like you mentioned, like you already went through it like John Amos. Then then you add in one of my favorites as we covered, but uh, just some of my tidbits. Wesley Snipes is General Izzy. He's really He's hilarious good. and great. I love me some Snipes. You know, so. Dude, it's really weird. Like, obviously, we knew with a lot of these movies like Dolomite and stuff coming out that this was going to kind of be of a, a, a resurgence for Eddie Murphy. And, you know, that's no surprise. But I did not foresee these movies basically also being a resurgence for Wesley Snipes because not only because <laughs> he's he's very similar in Coming to America that he was in Dolomite. Like, it, it's a yep. side character, but there he does such a good job at it that they stick out like a sore thumb. Exactly. Uh, something else I wanted to mention. Hey, Ed, our man... The man from back in the day, Barry W. Blostein. Oh, uh, yeah. was the writer of the story, <laughs> which for those that don't know, he was the original creator, you know, full on director and producer of um, one of our favorite professional wrestling documentaries that we did cover on the podcast. Yeah. And um, beyond the Jay's mat. usual brain fart beyond the mat. So that was that was cool to see that he was the writer on this one. I mean, really, the only difference is, as as you mentioned on the outset, that the directors are different. You know, no no returning John Landis with uh, Craig Brewer directing uh, coming to America here, the 2021 version. Uh, but like you said, I mean, I, I liked it. 
they they kind of did like twists of the original plot but then again it kind of ruins it to be able to do anything standing out from the original so in turn you kind of get less story and just a lot of good comedic set pieces basically set up with the characters you love from the first one and the said stacked returning cast, you know, and that's what I liked about it. Cause of course you have the, you know, with the returning Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, you have their returning multiple characters of the, the barbershop, barbershop guys, those, those Randy scenes Watson, great. Reverend yep. Brown. Um, those dudes are all, all still kill me when they, when they do those guys and it's still just so great. It just goes right back. You know what the the barbershop scene and stuff like there are scenes I should say those are the strength of the movie like that's yep, yep. that stuff all works it's all Again, really well done stuff that's what it's for um the one thing that I say is a bit of a minus for this movie too and I I hate being like this but this type of material it it certainly bleeds through. This needed to be an R-rated movie, just with the same type of comedy that the original. Because that's what stood out with the first one. Because I, I had, I, I did it. I hadn't watched the original Coming to America for a long time, and I was like, "This is perfect timing to revisit it." Right I before did the I watched same Coming thing. to America, yeah, it was great to do. And I forgot, like, because shit has been become so watered down with the politically correct era that we're in or however you want to put it that when you go back and like the classic scenes when he like comes like he's like yelling in the streets and like shut the fuck up he's like I'm in love and they're like fuck you New York I love you yeah. fuck you fuck yes you. fuck, fuck you, too. you too yeah <laughs> that's that's exactly what this missed but but again for a, a sequel this this many years later there's certain ways that I look at it where I'm like, I don't know if they could have done much better. You know, maybe if you go a dramatic route or maybe the R-rated route, there's a couple maybe ways that you could have, but overall it was pretty damn good. You know, here here's the general issue with this one, and I guess it's the best way I could kind of sum it up to somebody that is like, hey, what did you think of this? So the original movie, I feel like someone who never saw that movie in 1989 can go and watch it right now and be like, oh, I now I get why everybody talks about this and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I get why this is such a well-known comedic classic type film. Uh, in 30 years, I don't think anybody is going to be able to sit down and watch this one and feel that way. Um, yeah. I don't feel like this will be timeless like the, the original was. Um, I think that a lot of this one depends on your fandom of the original. Like, it's made for you if you love the original, but outside of that. Like, if you watch the original and you thought it was just, like, okay or something, there's really no reason for you to watch this one. Because it's only it's it's made as kind of a love letter to the fans of the original, and that's pretty right. much it. And I don't know how well that's going to play 30 years down the line like it plays for the original. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And, um, you know, like you mentioned, just kind of going through the, the take on it with personal bullet points because uh, you had called out uh, Leslie Jones, who I'm not too big on usually, but she did really Agreed. good in this and she was good in the role. That was like the role that she needed to play. For, for they, I think, A, that role was written for her and whoever wrote that role, like whoever was responsible for like her comedic stuff in that role really did a good job with her. Like it just shows you because I'm, I'm the same way, like I'm not too big on her, but clearly there are people out there that can like 
with the proper material, bring the funny out of her. So I, I yeah. thought she did a really good job. And dude, I absolutely more so now than maybe ever before. And I've always kind of been a fan anyway, but I love Tracy Morgan. I just love that dude. I like him in real life, like personally, the way that he is. And I like him in the roles that he gets. I'm glad they gave, cause dude, that role that he plays in this is like perfect for him. Yeah, Uncle Reem. Yeah, yes, that's that's like some dude, how to cast some dude's this. uncle from from Queens. You know what I mean? Like that's that's <laughs> yeah. what he is. You know, and he had some just great, just the quick quips. You know, there's one line, and there's and nobody stuff, like so. him. He's he kind of yeah. reminds me a lot of like a new school like Red Fox. Like there's no one that can do his material because it's yeah. it's solely his, and it only Thank works. Goodness for he him. didn't pass away in that serious car crash he was in not, it, not too many years ago. Totally so. agree, man. 100%. So I'm glad but to you, see dude, you, kicking you, around. You called it great, as we always say on the show here. We get the close friend ESP, but you said to me, like, dude, I'm not going to spoil anything because you watched it before I did, and you were like, I, I, I'll just say I laughed a lot. And yeah, I'm right yeah. with you on that. I fucking, my wife and I were cracking up at parts. And, and again, we, we said the story's kind of paper thinnish. I mean, it was, it, it was all right. Like with, with the nostalgia factor and the fact that, like you said, it's kind of a love letter to, to those that were fans of the first one. It has like the kind of parallel plot, but with the, tw- the modern twists on it. So I get that and how they did that, but it, it wasn't enough for me to, to make it a, a classic. But again, it was, it was very entertaining overall. And as Hey had, giving me the heads up. I concur. I laughed a lot. Yeah. And dude, I was a fan before this. So I just wasn't even thinking about it until she showed up. But dude, Jesus Christ, Tiana Taylor is one of the hottest women. Holy fuck, dude. Like Jesus. It's it's, speaking of which, because watching, watching the first one, his first to be wife that he eventually leaves that he has, because she'll just do anything for him and she's barking (laughs) and she's back. She's Wesley Snipes sister and general Izzy sister. And she's still barking. Still barking, baby. Yeah, that was funny. So there's all the, all those little in jokes, you know, that like you mentioned, you did the same thing. That was like a really good call to watch coming to America, the original after not seeing it for a while, like right before this. So like everything's right there, you know? Yeah. I mean, watch it's in no way perfect, but it is a good time. It's definitely worth checking out. I will say that, especially if you're a fan of the original, it's kind of a must. So as you guys know, here on the show, we have our five star rating scale and this one for me, the J I'm going to give it three stars. Okay. I'm with you. Uh, really concurred on this one. Hey, uh, I got the same star rating, uh, three stars. And as the J does within our segment here, a sequel is in the air. H E I R is the tagger, which is good. <laughs> yeah. See, now that's a, that's, we talk about quality sometimes here of uh, taglines, and that's a pretty it's good lacking. one. That's a good one. Yes. Yeah, that's a good one, you know, and it's not even that like mind blowingly creative. It's, it's just, a pun, but yeah, it's, it's good. It just works. works for what it is. So, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. That was our look at Coming to America. You can watch that right now on Amazon Prime if you have it. Uh, it is included for no additional charge. So can't go wrong as far as that's concerned. Uh, we have to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, me and the Jay are going to get back into our favorite WrestleMania matches of all time. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Hey everyone, it's the Jay from the What's Real Podcast, here today to talk about churchillpictures.com. 
Churchill Pictures was founded by two childhood friends that grew up in Churchill Borough, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jared Bajoris and Damiano Fusca began collaborating on their first feature film in 2007, Deference, winner of the Silver Ace Award at the Las Vegas Film Festival in 2012. Go to churchillpictures.com to check out our original trailers, documentaries, comedy sketches, the entire history of the infamous Backyard Wrestling League, UCW, exclusive independent wrestling content, and exclusive videos showcasing our next huge film project entitled The Marks. This includes an appearance from our character, the feature presentation, Johnny Starr, on the streaming talk show, Alone Together Pittsburgh. We are Churchill Pictures. Established from the bond of two childhood friends, we envision creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Churchill Pictures. Picture the possibilities. Go to churchillpictures.com today. And we're back here on the show. And as I mentioned before, break time there. Me and the Jay are going to get back into it. This is week two of our favorite WrestleMania matches of all time. Uh, it was a blast doing this last week, man. So I look forward to see where we go from here. So what do you say, the Jay? Give us another one of your favorite WrestleMania matches of all time. Jay's going to kind of stick to his somewhat of chronological order, stemming off the old school first handful of Mania matches that I was choosing from last week. So we're going to start this one off hey, yeah, where the Mager, Mager. <laughs> <laughs> Drum roll, please. With Never Jared mind. The Mager. The like, Mager. That was a Mager. The Mega Powers Explode. Hey, you know, at WrestleMania choice. 5, it was Hulk Hogan versus Macho Man Randy Savage with one of maybe arguably the best year-long storyline storylines of all time for a full year yeah. fighting over Miss Elizabeth all those different little things that happened on like the Saturday night main events and things like that the build to that and then two of the most popular baby faces uh, after becoming a tag team known as the Mega Powers going against each other for the championship in the main event fifth WrestleMania dude had to start there hey that uh, is this match is the culmination to me at least of one of the most memorable years in professional wrestling, specifically the WWF at the time, because it would have been 89, right? Yeah. Cause in yeah. 88, it started at WrestleMania four where we saw macho man win the title with help from Hulk Hogan. That's when the mega powers got together. And then through, yep. the, through the next year, you would literally see the formation of the mega powers with miss Elizabeth then you would see kind of like a little dissension, not to mention their feud they had that year with uh, the Twin Towers, uh, Big Boss Man and, and Akeem. That was kind of like their main feud, I guess, to their one of the most memorable things I remember ever on uh, Saturday night's main event with Macho Man turning on Hulk Hogan after Miss Elizabeth got knocked out during that match where she gets decimated when, yeah. when Macho Man gets thrown on top of her. So, like, dude, this this match is literally, like, you saw some of the most, you know, major television stuff, angles and things like that, and it all culminated uh, at WrestleMania five with this matchup. And, you know, I think without a doubt it's safe to say that, uh, you know, out of the first five WrestleManias, this was definitively Hulk Hogan's best match at those WrestleManias, too. Yeah. So yep. Macho that, carrying them. And, and not to tirade, hey, uh, on the current product, because again, you can't compare and it's different eras and all that. And it's just a different time content wise. 
you know, all, all the corporate kind of, you know, things that the current WWE product has to do for their partners. And it's a multi-billion dollar business now. And so that this may never happen again, but just the storytelling part of professional wrestling is what this exudes, you know? Yeah. And that's a slow, especially as a kid. Yeah, watching like this you, as a kid, and it took a year to kind of see what the story was. Exactly, be. that's what and, I mean. And yep. dude, it's kind of like too, like you know, like it, it's this this angle to me is like looking back at a great film. You know what I mean? Like it because it's really that's how much stuff there was to this. This wasn't yeah. just like a couple angles that they ran on TV. This was literally over a year's worth of television and pay per view and stuff that every week kind of incrementally led to this point. So. Uh, I give him a lot of credit for that, man. That's one of the best build-up feuds in WWF history, without a doubt. So, good choice on that one. So, uh, did you hate you up? Uh, first one I'm doing this week involves one of those same men, uh, and it's going to be a couple years later. I'm going to take you to WrestleMania 7 with the career-ending matchup between the Ultimate Warrior and the Macho Man Randy Savage. Uh, without a doubt, in my opinion, this is the Ultimate Warrior's greatest match in his career. Um, it's extremely epic. Um, it's one of those matches, I think, because this is one, I think WrestleMania seven was the very first WrestleMania that I ordered at my house. Okay. And I was looking forward to this match. And just to give you an idea, I was a, I was a warrior fan when I was a kid, but I loved macho man and macho man was a heel at the time. And I still was rooting for him. Now, keep in mind, too, this is a career-ending match back when this meant something. Like, it wasn't, you know, we didn't see a 100 of these where guys just lose and just end up coming back. So, like, we thought Macho Man's career was done. And then, of course, they did the big angle at the end of that with, uh, you know, Sherry attacking Macho Man and Miss Elizabeth coming back to save the day kind of a thing. So... Uh, it's a huge angle. It's it, it was one of the most memorable moments, I think, in WrestleMania history to me. And the match lives up to that hype, too. It's not like the match isn't any good and all the other stuff is what makes it good. That match is damn, damn good. Even to this day, it still holds up very well. Great call, hey, Ed. So, so we'll disclose this because this is the first time this has happened on our second week here of the What's Real Favorite WrestleMania matches because we mentioned how we're going to have prepared audibles because we don't want to, you know, we're not going to double talk about matches and we want to get as many on here as we can. So I had this on my list for this week, but Good I have call. a backup. So, but yeah, great it's a great call. Like, exactly. And I, I was a huge Warrior fan, uh, as you mentioned too, like, but I was just huge on the warrior when I was younger, like the character just got me and the music, man, the music in his in-ring entrance is just his tenacity. And every reason as a little kid would, would like somebody like the warrior is just the, the classic over the top personality and character. He was like beyond a man. Larger like I looked than at life. him as just a yep. larger than life, real life cartoon basically. And Macho Man at the time, like you mentioned, being a heel, I was just all for the warrior. And again, this is a match I've revisited so much and you look back on it and I completely agree with you i would say as a warrior fan i would call this his top match of all time like this this would be my go-to of, of warrior matches and warriors had a few you know and there might be more on this list uh but nonetheless this match is so good the the storytelling i mean you went through it even the funny parts that we've talked about on the show when he gets with miss elizabeth at the end and the build up to that oh and that the goof classic crying. image of the goof crying with the wizard hat as we always <laughs> say um but you know it's it's like anything great man all the components are together it's magic that sort of thing so 
great call. Love the WrestleMania seven career versus career match and warrior Savage, you know, just call out again when Savage did the five uh, flying elbow drops, his finish. That was mind blowing back then. And warrior kicked out. That never happened. Like no. he just pop as a kid, like by even like watching it by yourself or something. Dude, so, that's one yeah, of those great match. Man. That's one of those things. I remember, I remember watching that match live the night it happened. And I was just like John the ground stunned that warrior kicked out of those elbow drops. Like I couldn't believe it. I was like, Oh my, like I've like, we're in uncharted territory. Like I have no idea what's going to happen here. Cause I never thought that would happen. That you know, warrior and savage is definitely one of the, the greatest WrestleMania ma- like matches period of all. And it's not even for a belt either. So that's something that, that should be mentioned too. Cause back then it's like a lot of the non-title stuff was just throwaway stuff. And that was definitely not. So, all right, the Jay, what do you got next up on your list of greatest WrestleMania matches of all time? So, I mentioned in that breakdown, as I was kind of stating that that was Warriors' Warriors' number one match maybe ever, and in my opinion probably was, that there could be more on here. So, let's just go straight there with continuing with some great Warrior-ness in WrestleMania. And next up, hey, I went with Warrior Hogan. WrestleMania six for the championship main event in the sky dome, dude. Okay. So here's something that's kind of weird. We talked about this last week and I agree with you. I love that match, but remember we were talking last week about steamboat and savage from WrestleMania three. And it's a match that is highly touted as this classic match, but then it has this strike against it because they got together pre-match and had a lot of the stuff already mapped out that they were going to do. So in wrestling circles, or at least to professional wrestlers, it's not as good of a match because of that. Cause they didn't go out and just call it in the ring type thing. Right. Why does that match get that knock against it? But this match doesn't because to me, it's the same thing with this match, except for instead of Hogan and warrior doing it, it was Pat Patterson that helped set it up that way. So, and don't get me wrong, it's a great match, and it absolutely, to me, uh, took these two guys that you really wouldn't think would be able to have a good match together, and they kind of mapped out, like, the perfect kind of battle that these two, two baby faces, two big, strong muscle dudes, two forces at the time that were almost indestructible, Uh, both guys were the main singles champions, like, it was... It was perfectly like that match wouldn't work if you had the same match, same move, same everything with Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. But it works for Hogan and, and Warrior to maybe better than I've ever seen another match like that kind of put together. Yeah, really, really good points, hey, Ed. And, and I'm with you. Yeah, that's a good question. And again, I'll go to it. It's opinion. You know, some people think that, but some don't. And I think both of us are two guys that, you know, we mentioned it in the breakdown of said uh, Steamboat Savage match that we were saying regarding that. Hey, is, if you're trying to get from point A to point B to have a great match and you get to point B, that's what matters to me. And these guys in both these matches got to point B, however they did it beforehand. I mean, that's why it's professional wrestling. It's predetermined, however you want to put it. So whatever works to create a great match, it, it made a great match. And this is legendary and classic. Uh, again, it goes for those WrestleMania settings, the Skydome setting always stood out yeah. just you know crazy really cool looking, looking back at that stadium too. so cool a little little side tidbit i'm sure most wrestling fans know but if you don't a young edge was in the crowd oh, yeah. uh, i think i believe with christian yep. jay riso himself uh watching as young kids probably similar ages to us uh live uh, you know canadians so 
they were there live at the show. A little tidbit there. But yeah, just such an excellent match. And it's just it's another one that goes to the fact that people will crap on Warriors in ring and things like that. But it was one of those things when Warrior needed to go, he would go. You know, people might get on his cardio or whatever. And I mean, the dude's doing a full blown sprint gas to the gills at 250 you know i'm like it's amazing he lasted more than five minutes in any match let alone these kind of matches that actually go time you know i thought uh, that always stood out to me this match is just being great but but yeah i mean how 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 much bigger does it get than hulk hogan is the world champ warriors the uh, ic champ the first time that ever happened in the main event and they just go and it looked like that that was going to be hogan passing the torch to warrior to take the um the reigns is the main main eventer in that era of WWE, which as we all know, or WWF at the time, of course, that isn't the way it went. It didn't happen, but that's what they were looking to do. Uh, Hogan did that famous look back at the end of the ramp yeah. and things like that. Yep. And he has since stated that in his head, he was going to run back down or something like that. I don't believe that. At as all. we always say, yeah, we can never believe what Hogan says, but nonetheless, those are some tidbits with this match. But yeah, I, I just uh, had to throw that on the list, had a legendary classic. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that being on the list. And it's kind of funny that that was the match that you picked because I had my next match that I picked kind of coincides with this. So as you said, uh, when Hogan lost that match, he was pretty much supposedly passing the torch on the warrior. And that's not really how it worked out because after the warrior had the belt for almost a year, it was kind of determined that they didn't really have anybody to draw against him. Um, They tried Mr. Perfect. It didn't work out. There was a bunch of dudes that they were going to try, but they just couldn't figure out how to make the warrior a draw as the champion. Like it seemed like people only cared about him as far as the chase went. Um, So whenever that didn't work out, they decided to take the belt off of him and put it on, of all people, Sergeant Slaughter. Um, And, of course, Slaughter is well known during that gimmick for when he was champion of being kind of the Iraqi sympathizer character that was extremely controversial then and kind of still is to this day because of, you know, a lot of the PC stuff in the world that's looked at as like Zionist and stuff now. Um, But that's a whole other argument for a whole other day. But the reason why I bring all this up is because the next match is also uh, from WrestleMania 7 again on my list. And I'm going with Sergeant Slaughter versus Hulk Hogan for the WWF Championship. This matchup is really underrated to me. Um, Slaughter kind of played like this asshole chicken shit heel when he was that character. And this was the first match, even though he lost the title in the match, where he kind of switched on that, where... He, he was, was aggressive. Well, he was super aggressive. He was like borderline. Yeah. Like they were doing that gimmick where everybody hated him and they want, they wanted Hogan to win, you know, cause you know, he was the Iraqi sympathizer. So what did he do as the heel? Well, I'm going to cheat and do everything to get disqualified. If you want to disqualify me, then do it. And they went with that idea of like, well, the ref was giving them leeway because they didn't want him to take the easy way out kind of a thing, which gave him a, bit of an advantage in the match in and of itself and the way he could work and cheat and use, you know, choke Hogan with wires and use a chair and everything. And, uh, and it's also kind of cool too. I don't know if you remember this specifically, but Hogan would go on to win this match. And then the next week on TV, they, they were like, there's something happened after the match. We're going to show you what it was. So they show Hogan going backstage, doing the interview with me and Gene, where he's celebrating and slaughter comes out of nowhere and catches him with a fireball. Um, amazing, which was really cool. And dude, it's, you know, I thought slaughter was always a really good worker anyways. 
Um, but it's kind of hard to believe that this, like, he's probably, I want to say maybe eight, nine years out of his prime at this point, And he was still able to pull off this kind of match. And that at the time, that feud was like, you know, pretty crazy. So it all led to a great match. And to me, it kind of showed you something that was a little bit different for the WWF at the time. Uh, a main event title matchup with Hulk Hogan involved where the heel reminded me of like a lot of the NWA heels and stuff of the eighties where guys were throwing fireballs and like, it was really like, it felt like there was more on the line than just a typical wrestling. Yeah. Don't, don't forget that at that year's rumble to win the, the belt, uh, Macho Man hit Warrior with a scepter. Yep. You know, which started that feud, set up that feud. And that's how, Slaughter ended up winning the belt, and and that's why it worked. Hey, Ed, uh, with Slaughter's character and his heeldom, because he's known as being the only WWF wrestler to actually get a licensed actual uh, GI Joe character. Yeah, at the time, he was a legit GI Joe character, which was huge in the eighties. That's huge toy line. That was originally a big deal. Uh, why he left the WWE or WWF right. back then because yep. they were big in merchandising and toys and they wanted that money for themselves. And whenever uh, slaughter had the opportunity and they were like, well, if you take the opportunity, you're gone. He took it. And, has, I, bro. and I don't blame yeah. him. You know, that's, that ended up being, you know, and, and this, here's something really weird. I don't know if you even know this or not, but you remember the old LJN figures, right? Of course. So they had a Sergeant slaughter planned. And they had like, you know, the, the prototypes of them made up and he ended up leaving the company. So it's a figure they never did. Well, it just so happened. There is a slaughter LJN quote unquote figure, but you know what it is No. So once he left and he was doing the GI Joe thing, uh, GI Joe and Hasbro came out with a Sergeant slaughter figure that literally was an LJN figure. It was the same size. It was made of rubber. It's in scale with all the other LJN figures. The only difference is it wasn't sold in stores and it wasn't obviously sold as an LJN figure. You, it was a mail-away figure that they had. And a lot of the dudes that collect LJN figures today, like when they collect all of them, that Hasbro Sergeant Slaughter is considered one of the LJNs, even though it wasn't even an LJN toy originally. Wow. Yeah, I vaguely remember hearing something about that, but that is crazy. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. But, you know, Slaughter was able to do all that stuff independently of the WWF and eventually make his way back and got into this feud, which is, you know, say what you want about it. It's still to this day one of the most, you know, remembered feuds of all time, kind of because of how crazy it was. Well, another another little standout part of it, hey, Ed, was the fact that Hogan bleeds pretty good in this. Which, oh, yeah. You know, WWF did rare blood back then, but that's what makes it stand out so much, which was cool, you know, especially pre-attitude era. So, you know, that always stood out to me as a kid, you know, Hogan bleeding at WrestleMania seven main event. So yeah, great call to get on the list, man. Great match. Yeah, man. So what do you got next to Jay? So next up, and I'm just kind of staying somewhat chronologically with what I put together here. Hey, and this was actually the Jay's audible. So let me let you know that one, as opposed to initially having uh, your warrior versus savage WrestleMania seven match. And I picked another Savage match, one of my favorites of all time. And this is where it basically became a dream match before we even realized it. And that is WrestleMania 8 for the WWF Championship, Macho Man Randy Savage versus Ric Flair. Yeah, that's a good choice. I I didn't have it this week, but it it would have been on my list. 
Um, that match also too, it's, it's kind of, uh, cause it's talked about pretty regularly about how great of a job Bobby Heenan does on commentary at the 92 Royal rumble. Um, and he kind of continues that during that match because they do the yeah. old, you know, Heenan's meal tickets flare kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, it's one thing that's always weird. And I don't know if you've thought about this and it just reminded me you bringing that up. So, Leading up to this feud, the week or two before the match, there's an interview with Flair and Mr. Perfect, and they the one thing they said, they're like, oh, we have this big centerfold of Miss Elizabeth. We're going to show everybody on the big screen at WrestleMania. And they were building this up. Like, they talk about it on commentary, all kinds of shit. They even bring it up, if you watch WrestleMania 8, uh, Heenan brings it up a few times. And it's weird because... I have no idea what this was, if there was actually a plan to do something or something just didn't work out, but like they totally dropped it. Nothing ever came of it. And what was that? It was supposed to be like flair and perfect said that they were going to like unveil the centerfold of miss Elizabeth that they have. And, oh, okay. and they were, they're like, we're going to so, show So them. maybe behind the scenes, like with just the content. I don't know. I have no idea, but it's something they brought up on TV. Like it was part of the angle, like at WrestleMania, we're going to show this Miss Elizabeth centerfold. And it just, yeah, I do remember that. They never brought it up again. I mean, I figured that they would either show something or they'd be like, oh, you know, Macho Man got to them earlier in the day and stopped that from happening or, you know, whatever the case may be. But like for them to make a point to bring that up multiple times and then just not do anything and it's never brought up again, I just thought was weird. That is weird because that's that's the thing. That's why this is another standout. There's a you know similar factor here, kids. Storytelling, you know, and the storytelling build up to this was awesome. Like I still remember, dude. They went the, having the WWF magazine that, where they had Flair like photoshopped instead of Savage, and those pictures, and that all gets revealed eventually, dude, and all that stuff. Like as a kid, you're like believing that is like Flair really getting with Miss Elizabeth. You know, of course that's the point, and especially at that age. But nonetheless, man, they like really hit that home. You know, that was such a big deal because. I mean, think about this, man. They didn't do this very often at all. No, dude, um, I still remember the Entertainment Tonight they were on. Yeah, but they did a special on Entertainment Tonight that was huge at the time. But them running an angle through their magazine was really smart. I mean, not only just exactly. because it's a good way of telling a story, but like, dude, as a kid, you had to go out and get those magazines. Like, you needed those. Like, you're yeah. like, I got to see these pictures. What is this? And, like, dude, I remember this so vividly, just to give an example. And I was, you know me, I still have them to this day, but I was collecting the magazine at that point. I was getting them every month. I might even have had a subscription yep. at that point. But I remember looking at that first issue with the Flair Miss Elizabeth pictures and examining these pictures, like looking for something that was fake or uh, how can I tell these are wrong or something. And I thought it was really weird because in one of the pictures, they had movies on a shelf that you can see. And one of them was the Coliseum video of WrestleMania four. And I was like, Hmm, why would flair own a WrestleMania four VHS? Tape? Yeah, that's hilarious. But that's how it was back then. Cause like, dude, you didn't have oh, yeah. 50 hours of TV a week. You watched one show. And then the rest of the week, you're like reading your magazines and shit. Cause that's the only wrestling fix you could possibly get. Yeah, and, that, and that one show was a jobber show. Yes. So it was just so, such a different era. And some and weeks, you, know, you know, some weeks you would get an angle development and other weeks you wouldn't. 
you know, and again, everything that goes into it, to it with WrestleMania eight being at the Hoosier dome in Indianapolis that year. And just, you know, it's That's just those, those classic settings, those stadiums at, the, at those, yeah, those years, great WrestleMania and probably the, you know, my favorite match of that WrestleMania I had to get on there, but how, how can you go wrong with flair savage for the WWF championship? No, I agree. And it's even weirder too. Cause that's in the middle of the show that I think that was the first time that the, you know, there was a WWF title match on a WrestleMania and it wasn't yeah, the last I, match. I remember being com- confused about that as a kid because you don't, you don't know. It's like, why is this going on here? Of course, it was for Hogan coming back. Of course. The main event, but, and then Warrior, so. Uh, next up on my list, I'm going to go to WrestleMania 12, and it's probably not a mystery where I'm going with this. The very first WWF Iron Man match between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Uh, this is this is like the recurring theme here this week. Uh, not only is that a great match, but dude, that build they build up that match for so long. I remember, remember, dude, back then because we watched this pay per view together at our buddy's house. By the way, Keen's house. This is where we watched that. Yep. And dude, I'll never forget seeing all those training montages where Michaels is like upside down doing the pull ups yeah. or the push ups off the pull up bar. I've since shit. stole that and some sketches I've done. And everything. But yeah, like that's, that's where it goes back. But to. dude, that, there's a reason why you did that because that stuck out to you is like it's, that's what I mean. Wow, yeah. I've never really seen anybody do this or anything, you know. And for two guys like that that legitimately didn't like each other in real life to go out there and do something that had never been done, especially at WrestleMania to that point, where the main event was an hour-long match. And I remember even going into that night watching that match being like, all right, like it, you kind of wanted to see it because of who was feuding, but you also wanted to see it to be like, how the hell are they going to do this? Yeah, and I remember just being younger, being somewhat upset, because I'm like, well, that means there's less matches, you know, <laughs> stupid things yeah, like that. I but yeah, at the end the of the thing. day, yeah, it was it was so good. I mean, and that's one of those ones like going back and watching it, man. It's just it's such a classic because like with with the eye that I have now, you know, that's when I always like to revisit because it being an hour and you just pick up on stuff the more you see it, kind of thing. Yep. So you know, just uh, another classic. You know, uh, again, like little factors that build it up with Michael's entrance. That entrance. Like, Where's he at? And Jose points to the top of the stadium, and he comes down from the the top of that, the arena. Dude, roof that's on since the zip line. That's since become one of the most iconic WrestleMania moments of all yeah, that time. Image absolutely yeah, with all the flash bulbs. Yep, it's ridiculous. And dude, that's crazy so. because they're they're at the fucking pond in Anaheim. So that's where yeah. that's where the you know the Anaheim Ducks played hockey, but dude, when he's doing that, it looks like there's fucking seventy thousand people in that place. Like yeah, it's, just it's that. Some, it's those times that the WWF just would knock it out of the park. Hey, and that's like that. that's the showmanship aspect of things that the WWF does better than anyone else in professional wrestling, and it because of that, it gives you those iconic moments. So. You know, that's why I had to pick this one, because I felt like this this was really especially too. we were such hardcore fans at the time. And we were like teenagers that where we had like a critical eye on wrestling still. But we had seen enough to know a lot. And this match was still something that just felt like monumental and different. Yeah, sit down and watch an hour long match as like a teenager and, and be intrigued is is amazing and a, and a great finish too the way they do it yeah with the the counts the and overtime the tide and the overtime and everything and Brett's all pissed and has to walk back and everything 
And it, it so, gave the perfect right. ending too for Michael's got to achieve his dream, the boyhood dream. And Bret Hart had a legitimate, like, what the fuck kind of excuse going into it because it, that was never talked about. That was a last minute decision they made when it went to the overtime. So, and it's it's cliche by this point, but that was the first time that Bret legitimately got screwed. Yep. Yeah, because of the commissioner was Monsoon at the time and the storylines making the call for, for overtime. Well, no, it was Piper. Because remember that because oh, Piper was the special ref or something. Well, like, no, they uh, that was around when um, Monsoon was the uh, commissioner, but I think that's when Vader destroyed him. So in the meanwhile, that's right. they Piper had stepped Piper in. Okay, stepping it's in. Coming back to me. I have to revisit that man. I feel like I just watched WrestleMania 12 in the Iron Man not too long ago, but. Oh, and just as a, I'm just going to throw it out there because I don't have this on my list. Hopefully, you don't either. Uh, but I was going to say it's like an honorable mention kind of thing. Dude, Diesel and Undertaker's a pretty underrated match on there. Like, you wouldn't think that'd be the best match, but when you watch that, it's like they get time, and Nash, is, could, he could still go, and, you know, Taker's working at a pretty high level. It's it's a much better match than I thought. And I, As we say, especially for a big man match. And that's a pretty sure. good feud, too. I don't know if you remember that, where, like, they would have, that's where oh, they came out of the ring and everything. Where they had Diesel in the coffin, and it was like, he's looking at himself in the coffin and shit, yeah. you know? Yeah, it was like the mannequin. Yeah. yeah, so that was pretty cool, too. So, what do you, uh, what do you got next up, the Jay? Well, as I have said on the show, but for those fresh listening by chance right now, uh, one of the Jays, if not his favorite wrestler of all time, which says a lot is HBK. And with Hey Ant throwing HBK on our WrestleMania list for the first time here, great minds, because as we said, we don't talk about this prehand, folks. My next one, Hey Ant, to get it on, one of the all-time classics, the first ever ladder match on a WrestleMania card, WrestleMania 10 for the Intercontinental Championship. Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon ladder match. Definitely on my list, but I was holding off because I knew you were going to bring that one up. And no, I'm just I here. Mean, I'm kind of going chronological. You know, you did 12. I'm a little behind you dude. there as far as that goes. Even though we're not doing any order, I'm, you know, I just think the way I do. But yeah, that's where I'm at. Hey. That match was a game changer, really. Because um, there, there had been ladder matches before that. Not a ton of them, obviously. But that one put such a spotlight on that kind of a match that it it basically introduced a brand new match and 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 match style to the lexicon of pro wrestling because that's that really changed everything that's when you started seeing you know ladder matches on a regular basis at that point all different types of companies when previously that was more of a a territory gimmick than anything so even though they didn't do it for the they weren't the first ones to do it um even in WWF as the uh, Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart had had a ladder match previously. Um, but these two really took it to another level. The fact that they were good friends personally outside of the ring probably helped too. Um, and again, uh, it's weird just to even because the story the, that's well, no, I was going to say, this is part of the plan that we, I don't think we thought of, but we talked about it last week and we already talked about it this week, but a match that people like or give a lot of credit to, but they don't bash it like they did Steamboat and Savage putting it together ahead of time. Because I guarantee you, Michaels and, and Razor put a lot of this stuff together ahead of time. Yeah, a good portion of it. You would think uh, so. But yeah, with 
with that too, like I was thinking, thought you were going, um, but the story, you're right, say, you're... But yeah, the story too, where that he got the intercontinental Shawn Michaels taken away from him and he came back still claiming to be the IC champion, even though razor was the current IC champ and the way they built it up. And they had both, both the belts. Cause Michaels came back with his, his old belt that he had, not officially lost, but you know, Razor had since been declared the IC champ, so they each had an IC belt, so both of them were hanging and stuff. Just great story aspect, you know, with the gimmick of the ladder being involved. And dude, to throw in a little outside thing too, I don't know how many people are, are realizing of this, but uh, Michaels had been the Intercontinental Champion previously, like Jay, the Jay just said, he never lost it. He was suspended because of something, you know, uh, storyline wise. Um, but what a lot of people might not realize is his contract was up when he was the Intercontinental Champion. And he went into negotiations kind of and was like hardballing them. And I don't think people realize that this is probably the closest Shawn Michaels actually, even though people thought he was, you know, there was rumors that he was going to go and stuff later on, obviously, when Hall and Nash were in WCW with, with the NWO and stuff like that. But this is probably the closest time period or the closest chance that Shawn Michaels ever had to going to WCW. He was really thinking, he was really negotiating with WCW at the time. Um, And they just, I, they probably would have got him if it would have been, you know, like if he would have been where he was like a year later in his career, I think they would have went all out and signed him. Because if you remember, they had gone out and signed Rick Rude away from the WWF, maybe a year or two earlier than that. Uh, Well, yeah. So like 93, it would have been. Um, yeah. And, you know, that worked out for WCW. So they were kind of looking at mid-level WWF guys that they could kind of bring in and catapult them to main events. And Michaels would have been one of those guys. But luckily, Vince was smart enough to not allow that to happen. And whenever he brought him back, he didn't really punish him or anything. He put him right into this. And that was around the time period, too, where the click was starting to have a lot more influence and stuff backstage so it lined up a match where these two guys could get in there against each other and it made for one of the most all-time classic wrestlemania matches of all time without a doubt yeah you can't have a wrestlemania's greatest matches list without this match no you can't you absolutely can't because it's it's one of those benchmark matches so you can't you know you have to add in the benchmark matches i think too that it's funny that you picked this one when you did, because I think the Iron Man match that I just spoke of is another one like that. They're, they're benchmark matches in that they changed a lot about professional wrestling moving forward. So you can't have the list exactly. without them. Yep. Uh, next up for me is, again, one of those benchmark matches. And it's funny how this works out, the Jay, because like you said, we don't talk about this. So you just brought up the ladder match being a benchmark. I'm going to fast forward all the way to WrestleMania 17, where I would say that was the first benchmark of the ladder. And this was number two. This is the TLC match between the Hardy boys, Edge and Christian and the Dudleys. Um, this match blew the, the fucking lid off everything. As far as that kind of crazy ladder match stuff was involved. And it was maybe even the first time where we saw a classic tag match. And I don't mean classic as in two tag. I'm, I'm saying an absolute great match classic uh, tag match at WrestleMania happened. And 
they found a way to, you know, like you would normally these guys wouldn't get the time or, you know, the ability to have much of an impact on the show because they're just tag team wrestlers. They're not main event and stuff like that. And this changed that this match kind of made it so the tag teams could main event shows in the WWF at the time. And it's because nobody in this company and this keep in mind too, with this WrestleMania, they got heavy hitters still like Hogan. And I mean, uh, well, yeah, Hogan rock Austin, you know, like they had major, major guys, but those guys couldn't have this match. I'd remiss to say at this point, Hey, that this actually goes all the way back to us loving ECW personally, but ECW as a whole where it changed the industry with the R rated nature of how professional wrestling was with the ECW product Mm -hmm. and how everybody knows that ECW basically created the attitude era in the WWF in, in a lot of ways. And this is kind of where it culminated on their main show with this kind of a match with tables, ladders, and chairs and the kind of spots that they would be doing within the match. And on top of it, Paul Heyman at this point had been the commentator with Jim Ross in the WWF. So he's on commentary to boot for full circle there. But yeah, I think it goes back to the the ECW influence creating, you know, helping create the attitude era in the WWF for this match to eventually even be being able to happen. And of course the involvement of the Dudleys in this, you know, ECW mainstays that eventually made their way to the WWF who were perfect for this match, you know, and, and that's the other part of this, the chemistry of these uh, three specific teams between Edge and Christian, the Hardys and the Dudley boys would go on to create amazing classic matches for, for years stemming from this match and where we all worldwide saw the chemistry they had. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, it, it's kind of unique because they figured out a match that would obviously be appropriate for the Dudleys coming from ECW. Uh, it also works for the Hardys because they had like the daredevil gimmick. And it's really weird because to me at the time, the team of edge and Christian were like the odd men out. Like they, it kind of didn't make sense for them to be in there. But the thing is, whenever they would have these matches, edge and Christian would be the team that wins the matches so like, yeah, exactly. they were the ones that were like, you know, for some reason, like the really hard team to beat out of these three. So, I mean, it was really cool dynamic that they kind of built up with this. And it's like they used like they took the two teams that you would have thought would win the match and they didn't. So it then stamped the approval on Edge and Christian. And in the process, it took two teams that were already over, kept them over and the team that wasn't as much over as the other two, it got them over more so. And look what they ended up getting out of that, man. Like the Dudleys would go on to be one of the most decorated tag teams in the history of wrestling. Um, in Matt and Jeff Hardy, you would not only get a great tag team, but you would also have, you know, future world champion in there. You would have, you know, Matt Hardy would go on to do a ton of different stuff and they would eventually come back together. And then the team of Edge and Christian, you not only got a really good team out of it, but you got two of the most decorated guys in wrestling history, even separately. So the the amount of of just, you know, like the, what happened to the business just because of this one tag match and six guys that were in it is pretty impressive. Like you don't really see um, one match have that much of a reach, but like look how many championships and main events and matches and feuds and things 
that happened in pro wrestling that were a big deal that basically wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for this match kind of blowing all these guys up as major superstars. Exactly. All, all Hall of Fame performers for sure. Yeah, without a doubt. On top of that, because you mentioned specifically the six guys, at this point in time, they all had their their sidekicks that got involved in this match that added to it with the Dudleys having Spike Dudley, Edge and Christian being aligned with Rhino, and of course, at the time, the Hardys with Lita and Team Extreme, and they all do some some really cool spots and run-ins within this match too that that amp it up. Dude, and Lita's a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can't argue this. And and, and again, I got to point out just the setting and, you know, it's in the, uh, the huge dome in, in Texas and uh, just some of the footage and, and a rabid and crowd of, too. Absolutely. Yeah. The crowd that, was crazy. Dude, and would you so much to would it. Would you say that like, so you know, how like WrestleMania is now where it happens in like a big stadium. Uh, I mean, previous to COVID, like it would happen in a big stadium and it had like this massive fan base there that weekend to me that whole beginning started at wrestlemania 17 because remember they they were just in arenas for years they were out yeah they were out of the stadium shows and then they they returned uh after a few years to the astrodome it was and uh yeah i mean that set the stage because that again i i said it last week uh, top to bottom just overall uh, flow of every segment match for WrestleMania from top to bottom for the J, uh, I would probably pick WrestleMania 17 as the best of all time. Yeah, and it really set the stage for WrestleMania again to be a major stadium event uh, where it where everything, you know, like that was the show of the year. It's It was no, no question about it. Like the other pay-per-views were good and it's not to say that they were subpar, but none of them were going to be WrestleMania. And that was set out from the onset to be that way. And I think that once WrestleMania 17 hit and they were able to get back into that big stadium environment, they've kind of never looked back since, to be honest with you. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. What do you got? Uh, what's your last pick for the week this week, the Jay? So we're rounding it out. Hey, yeah, for the week, week two of the What's Real WrestleMania match picks here. And I'm going to stick with good old HBK for the J and where I'm at in the era. So I'm going back a bit few years from where you went, which is cool about this, man. Like we said, there's really no rhyme or reason or anything like that. You know, we're kind of taking you to a kind of time travel here on the podcast of, of top WrestleMania matches and the J and Ed's opinion. So I'm going to... Pretty much the only match, I mean, we we definitely said that it was better than it should have been and enjoyed, and this isn't my match, I'm just saying, uh, the Bam Bam Bigelow-Lawrence Taylor match on WrestleMania 11, but there's really not much that stands out, and I wanted to go to a gem for mine, because of course, it's HBK with his first WrestleMania big match in title shot, and that's Diesel versus HBK at WrestleMania 11 for the championship. Dude, I'll be honest with you. That's a really good match. The only problem I ever had with it is I thought Michael should have won. Yeah. Like, he should have taken the title from him there. For whatever reason, they didn't feel confident in doing that at the time. But um, that's really the only match. Like, the the Lawrence Taylor Bam Bam Bigelow match is significant because of what it is and really how that's how yeah, good that's why I wanted to give that disclaimer uh, before even name how it. good of a job that Bam Bam did in it carrying Lawrence Taylor in that you know uh, but dude the only match really that's that's even worth revisiting on that show is truly HPK and Diesel I mean you know it has a full feud to it it's for the title and everything. Um, but, you know, it it stood out. It just makes me wonder if, like, 
I wonder if that match would have been better um, if it main evented. And by that, I mean, I wonder if Diesel and Michaels would have tried to do something. Because I, I felt like they were pissed it wasn't the main event and kind of dogged it a little bit where they should have turned on the Jets. Especially Michaels. He gets so pissed, especially at that time. Oh, yeah. And I'm right with you. I, I think that. Because I remember being teenagers and thinking that. We were, like, even, like, not ridiculously, but somewhat pissed. Like, we're like, what the hell? Freaking Bam Bam is main event against Lawrence Taylor? Because, again, going going back as the wrestling fan I am now, I mean, Bam Bam as a big man, one of the best of all time, amazing. But just, you know, at that time, just how you felt about guys, you're like, man, Bam Bam and Lawrence Taylor over – Diesel and Michaels for the main event, which is kind of weird. The, the reason why it main evented is exactly why we didn't like it main eventing. Um, it main evented because Lawrence Taylor got the mainstream credibility and got them, right. you know, on ESPN and stuff. And we yeah, didn't we want it. that match main eventing because we were like, no, the fucking two wrestlers wrestling for the title should be not the main event, not the like circus match. And on top of it, with the tidbits here and little details to add, you got to add his horny teenagers, uh, <laughs> Diesel and Michaels being uh, Michaels coming down with Pamela Anderson herself and Diesel with, or was it vice versa? It was Michaels with Jenny McCarthy and then Diesel coming down with Pamela Anderson, yep. which at the time, man, Jenny McCarthy and Pam Anderson. Ooh. I mean, shout out to our friend Gus, ETA. Yeah. <laughs> got to shout that out there. Exactly. Man. Yeah. Prime time, baby. Yeah, but I mean, dude, there that was a huge match, and uh, it's kind of weird that they were never like. I wonder if they were thinking about maybe you know going that route again, uh, maybe the next year or something like that. But obviously, that wasn't in the case with uh, Diesel uh, getting ready to leave to go to WCW. So a lot of things got changed around. But yeah, I always had the vibe that like that was the beginning of a series of matches that they never really had. I mean, they had more matches together, but they just weren't, you know, combined within the storyline that way um, right. for whatever reason. So, but yeah, I get it, man. That's like I said, that's probably the only real match of consequence in that whole pay-per-view. Yeah. And that's where I was at in the timeline for a whole WrestleMania. I'm like, well, it's the only really good match on there and it's HBK. It's first shot. Let's get it on. Definitely part of this. So throwing it at you, hey, you up to wrap this week up. It's been a blast. What you uh, closing us out with? Last match I'm going with this week is one of the few times in wrestling where a match that I wanted to see, but I really wasn't too big on it going into it. Uh, but I was completely changed once I started to see how it unfolds. And of course, this is the legendary matchup now from WrestleMania 18 between Hulk Hogan and The Rock. Um, this for you know, for mo the most part, just seemed like a, a regular match between two big names. And once the crowd got involved and kind of intertwined with what the match itself was, I think it became something completely different. And to me, I love this because this shows you, like, this to me is like the magic of pro wrestling, where a crowd can somehow, some way make something completely different out of something else and you don't see things yeah. like this a lot in pro wrestling it just doesn't happen a lot so that's why this sticks out to me is something like i i could count on my hand probably the amount of times i've seen something like this so it, it's like you know it, it'd be like the equivalent of, of like watching a, a baseball game where you see a guy hit six home runs in a game like you know you're watching something that you're not going to see again anytime soon. And 
at that point too, we were all kind of like over Hogan in the ring. Like he can't really do much. Who cares? But I was legitimately impressed with what he was able to pull off in that match. And I was also uh, really impressed with the rock too, because that's when I realized how absolutely good the rock really was. Um, That's what I was going to say, dude. Like you have to set up the perspective side of things at the time, you know, when this is happening live. So Hogan had just been reintroduced into the WWF for the first time since WCW. And we weren't thrilled about that either. Nobody was thrilled with it. The the NWO WWF version was kind of watered down and weird. It just wasn't the same, just like so many things, you know, it wasn't the same as the, the NWO from WCW. And even at that point, WCW, when it was uh, still thriving, had watered down the NWO itself. Like the NWO hadn't been great for a while. So when the WWF tried to rehash it, it really wasn't great. And the matchup with The Rock was was somewhat intriguing, but Hogan was still Hollywood Hogan. He wasn't the WWF like All-American. And it was just a weird place. Like we just didn't know. And then this match coming out of nowhere. And like you said, hey, like you just kind of felt it at the beginning, of course, just when they're facing each other, you kind of sit up like, oh my. And I think that's what the live crowd did. And again, full circle on the podcast, how we do, we just shouted out our buddy Gus and our good friend Gus was actually at the show to shout that out. He was there live. So we got a cool personal perspective from a very close friend of ours on, on what it was like being there, which he said was absolutely unbelievable and exhilarating. And and yeah, but yeah, just that build up and not really being huge on it going into what it became was one of the biggest aspects of it. I could say that that was probably the day of uh, that WrestleMania, like say three o'clock in the afternoon, WrestleMania is on tonight. We knew the match was on there, but it was like, oh yeah, whatever. And afterwards, there's been so many times it's, it's like these huge guys going against each other and then it's a letdown. Yeah, in pro wrestling. absolutely. It's, it's just, and there was a lot of times where it worked, but there was a lot of times where it didn't. So yeah, like, you know, you really got to go back there and the reality of it and, you know, hindsight is what it is, but take the hindsight out of it to actually being fans then and just being like, uh, eh, this watered down weird version of Hogan in the rock, you know, is the rock, but then yeah, what it became is just legendary. And, and of course the commentating, you know, Jr. and King getting into it. And, and as you said, maybe, maybe the best crowd of all time for a yeah, match. It's, it's very close. I'll say that much. And dude, I mean, take that crowd away. Is it the same match? No, absolutely not. And dude, here's a weird side note too, that I just thought of uh, talking about it. You brought up our buddy Gus, who was there. Uh, guess where I was earlier that day. So like I'm watching the pay-per-view that night at home or at our friend's house and guess where I was at probably like noon that day. Hanging with Gus's brother, Runk. No, I was at WWF New York. <laughs> uh, Cause I spent that weekend in New York. In, yeah. That's awesome. Um, I didn't even think and, that and it was kind of cool because like anytime we walked through times square that week leading up to it. Uh, so you walk by WWF New York and they had like an electronic marquee outside that was like playing videos and stuff. And it was like, so, you know, like every year before WrestleMania, like they'd be like, let's go down to the control center and, you know, to Sean Mooney, who's going to talk WrestleMania. And they show the graphics and they, they announce all the matches and everything. They were still doing that kind of thing at that point. Not with Sean Mooney, obviously. 
Um, and that's kind of what they were playing. So like, I remember numerous times that, that weekend or that week, I should say, uh, walking through New York through times square and I'm looking up and it's like Hulk Hogan versus the rock at WrestleMania. Like they're going through the card. So, and I, I ate there and shit that weekend. I think I even bought a couple things in the gift shop. Um, but it was cool. You know what I mean? I, I just thought that that's something I always kind of remember in conjunction with that WrestleMania was like, you know, yeah. part of my buildup was being at and around WWF New York. So uh, that, that was definitely a good memory. And it's pretty cool. And that's a, it's a really, really good WrestleMania too. the 18. I like that one a lot. So, and that match is a big reason why. Yeah, we said they should have had that main event. You know, again, it's a hindsight thing, but that kind of changed the course, I feel, how WWF looked at setting up their manias. You know, always, I'm sure, fully aware of what's a main event. But, you know, again, full correlation. We were talking about kind of the weird placement of Lawrence Taylor, which, as you said, made sense for the the mass media appeal aspect of it. You see why they did it, but that's kind of weird. And then at this particular WrestleMania, after Rock Hogan was Jericho and Trips for the belt in the main event, and it kind of just really screwed up the momentum for what Jericho and Triple H could do in front of that audience. Yeah, and I think that really changed their outlook from that point forward with the idea of right. you better pick the the right match to go last or, or some somebody's going to suffer or look stupid, and it's, it's not going to be good for business. So... Um, but that's it this week uh, for our, our favorite WrestleMania matches. Uh, of course, next week we're going to continue with five more each. We've got a couple more weeks of this uh, going on. But uh, did you hear that, dude? I was going to say, dude, I'm getting scared again, man. I hate when this happens. There's fucking bombs going oh, off. Oh, shit. Shotguns Duck. in the distance. Dude. I'm going to the bunker. Yeah, go, here. go. Uh, guys, we'll be back uh, whenever we come back. If we're still alive, we're going to do Thursday Night Prime, uh, a force of one. So uh, hopefully we'll be alive, but until then, uh, uh, go to break, uh, and maybe we'll be alive when we come back right here on the What's Real Podcast. Cut and Run Studios is a multimedia facility that specializes in video production and photography. In the internet era, visual communication is the most powerful tool for storytelling. We believe it is our job to deliver the most compelling visual interpretation of a message and provide all the necessary capabilities in-house so that we can cover every angle of your story. Our production facility is at 1532 Beachview Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA, 15216. Check us out at cutandrunstudios.com. This is Ed from the What's Real podcast for Physically Fit with Kurt Angle. At Physically Fit, we are committed to providing our customers with the highest quality, better for you protein snack nutrition the entire family will enjoy. In a time when product quality seems to be compromised by price, we are determined to be unique and offer different offerings, superior ingredients, great taste, texture, and quality in every bag. We strive to inspire everyone on some level and share values of faith, family, respect, and excellence daily. Our goal is to be a small part of your life, personal growth, health, and happiness. We consider each customer to be part of our growing physically fit family and encourage all to live life to its fullest. Set new goals daily to better yourself physically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Don't compromise your values and always be kind and respectful to others. Our motto is healthy people, healthy planet, because we believe that providing great tasting nutrition makes for a healthier you, and a healthier you makes for a healthier planet. Strive for a better tomorrow and live physically fit. Go to physicallyfit.com today. It's time 
for Thursday Night Pride. That's right, it is time. Me and the Jay survived the incoming fire and explosions. We are here, and we are back in better than ever. I got a flesh wound here. Oh, you'll live. Come on. I'm still missing fingers from the first season. Jeez. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, this week, of course, on Thursday Night Prime, we're going to take a look at 1979's Paul Aaron film, A Force of One, starring Chuck Norris, Jennifer O'Neill, Clue Gulliger, Ron O'Neill, that's right, Superfly himself, and even Charles Cyphers from Halloween shows up in this one. Uh, this is, I guess, like pre-action hero Chuck Norris, Okay. So that's kind of why I picked this one in the first place, because I think it'd be interesting to go look back at, especially after we did uh, In Search of the Last Action Heroes last week. So this is the gist of it. Uh, Karate champion Matt Logan, a.k.a. Chuck Norris, is enlisted by the police to train officers in self-defense after narcotics agents are killed by an assailant using the martial arts. Um, We have about a 90-minute running time here, and... Here's the gists of of what I get from this one. Uh, There's a solid supporting cast for Chuck Norris, um, but with the fights being like few and far between, this one's kind of a snoozer. Uh, The the plot is like needlessly convoluted and and complicated for no reason. Um, So like there's a killer going around killing narcotics agents. Um, Chuck Norris plays this character where he's he's a well-known martial artist uh, and he has like, you know, he's like a professional fighter at the time. Basically, they show some of the fights and stuff, uh, which, by the way, the Jay, I don't know this for a fact, but I'd put money on those uh, fighting scenes like when they're in the ring and stuff. I swear that's a pro wrestling show. And I'll tell you why. Because the building looks about the right size, number one. And number two, I'm sure you know this. But in most cases, especially back then, of boxing and kickboxing, they happen in rings where there's four ropes. And there's only three in this one. So it just, yeah, it leads true. me to believe that this was done at a pro wrestling show. They just uh, cover the turnbuckles with like the, the, the four. The everlast like, things. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the rectangular yes. pads instead of the turnbuckles. Yep. And that's kind of how they covered up whatever turnbuckles were there for wrestling. Um, but yeah, man, it's kind of weird, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's done as like a whodunit, but not necessarily like it's pretty poorly done. Um, the one thing that I will say in this one is even though the fights are few and far between the ones that they do have in the movie, um, they're pretty pretty authentic. They were all designed by Chuck Norris himself. Um, so you get more realistic fights, uh, with an authentic feel to them than as opposed to like your typical ham fisted actual action movie sequence. Um, so that could be good or bad, depending on how you're look, looking at it. Um, this movie's played pretty straight by everybody involved. Um, and I think that's kind of like at the detriment of the movie. It's just slow. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of paying off going on. There's, there is one, uh, like you get that, uh, plot twist with Ron O'Neill being like a dirty cop, but they basically spill the beans to you on that halfway through the movie. Um, so there's not a whole lot of mystery to it. 
Um, so what you just get is a bunch of scenes of like Chuck Norris and Jennifer O'Neill, like aimlessly wandering around trying to find out what's going on. And you're not getting the fight scenes that you really want to see in this one. Yeah, it's definitely plotting. And, and that's the thing, you know, me, it's like for the TNP segment, we love our UIT, the unintentional comedy. And there wasn't much, much of that at all, because as you mentioned, they played it straight and it was a pretty decent movie, albeit, as we're mentioning, kind of slow, a good portion of it. Uh, but it p- picks up at, at times. Uh, there was a cool, you know, I don't even know if you call it a subplot or, or part of the main plot of Chuck Norris kind of adopted this street kid that's mom was addicted to heroin and stuff and like, raised him to be a good kid and, and a, a fellow martial artist. And he was like proclaiming to, to be the next martial arts champion and stuff. And so you, you kind of had sympathy, uh, you know, when, when something happens and that kid gets killed. Dude, that scene. So there's a scene towards the beginning of the movie where Jennifer O'Neill and Chuck Norris are in a car and they're driving somewhere and they're just making small talk. And uh, she's like, so you have a son. And dude, this is the goofiest shit ever. So he has like this 12 minute rant where he's explaining all this. Yeah, I know what she was like. And dude, the way he ends it had me crying because he's like, so I got him involved with martial arts and he's very good at it. He's been training and he's doing well and something. He's going to be the next big thing in martial arts. And I think he has what it takes. And then it like cuts and they're walking in a building. Cuts. I'm yeah, like, Jesus, like, that was terrible. Like, dude, now and, Chuck Norris, I'll never say that he's like an Oscar worthy actor. Okay. He's serviceable. That's about it. But boy, in this one, he didn't even have those chops yet because his dialogue delivery is pretty poor. And he just, it's weird because like Chuck Norris, he plays like a straight guy in his movies. Even in the later ones that are goofy, he still plays the straight guy. But in this one, he looks like a a deer caught in headlights in a lot of these scenes. Like, he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. uh, Other than the fight scenes in and of itself. But, yeah, he he basically has too much dialogue in this one. And it it really hurts the movie because he didn't have the acting chops at all at that point. I mean, it did come out in 79, the year of the Jay's birth, as I was born at the tail end of 79, December 21st. Literally. The hey, tail Ed end. came nine months yep. later, you know, but that shows you how how long ago this goes back and where Norris was. we're old as just fuck. Out for sure. <laughs> so we're old fucks. Yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm with you. And, and that's maybe the, the problem too with this is this might be the first ever, correct me if I'm wrong, hey, Ed, if you can just go back in the Rolodex of your mind for – uh, being in the second season of What's Real, of the Thursday Night Prime segment that's officially PG rated is a force. Yeah, I would think so too. And you know what's really weird is I had seen this before. It had been a long time since I've seen it. I've, yeah, I um, could barely remember it. I remember seeing it. But I would have just assumed this was a typical R-rated Chuck Norris movie, and it wasn't. Um, yeah, and I think that's what hurt it. That stood out, especially because, like, you know, there's some heavy subject matter as far as, it, you know, them being kind of – in the streets and chasing narcotics dudes and all that. Yeah. But, but yeah, just PG, no, no blood, no swearing. No Although sex. there, there is one quote that I wanted to mention. Cause I thought this was pretty hilarious uh, amongst the police trying to figure out the mystery of what's going on with these murders. <laughs> it's like the one cops, like maybe it's one of them karate weirdos, like in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know why, but that shit had me dying. Like just even the way he says it, like, hey, maybe it's one of them karate weirdos, like in the movies. 
<laughs> you fucking weirdo. And let me let me ask you this, hey, you know, would you uh, purchase a Matt Logan T-shirt? Because <laughs> oh, that's yeah. his character's Matt Logan, and like Muggs had the Matt Logan T-shirts because he's a somewhat famous Dude, karate expert. Matt Logan sounds like such a generic ass name for any. Like it sounds like Joe any character from any movie ever. Yeah, and it's so goofy in scenes where you just see people like with like a Matt Logan shirt. It's like the <laughs> fuck is that? Are you Matt Logan? No. Who the fuck? Yeah, at least call him Matt the Mauler or yeah, something. Yeah, or, or like, you know, <laughs> Spice Matt it up. the Maniac. You know, like, what? no, yeah. just Matt, like a shirt that says Matt Logan. Like, dude, yeah. even somebody with a, like, okay, say I was like a hardcore Indianapolis Colts fan back in the day. Like, I'm, you weren't going to catch me. Like, I'm going into their stadium with a shirt that just says Peyton Manning on it. Exactly. Not a jersey. It's just a I white that shirt hilarious. that's like Peyton Manning. That's it. <laughs> Matt, Matt Logan. Logan. But yeah, you know, overall though, I mean, dude, this one, I, I honestly would say like, if, if somebody was familiar with Chuck Norris and they were like, Oh, what's force of one? Like, should I watch it? Like it, I think they would be sorely disappointed. Um, it's basically the worst parts of a Chuck Norris movie. Like you don't get the, the explosions and the constant action stuff. It's a little bit too slow. Uh, for my liking. And it's weird because director Paul Aaron actually worked with Chuck Norris uh, more than once. Um, he made deadly force as well. And dude, this is really weird. I don't even know if you're familiar with this movie. Have you ever heard of Morgan Stewart's coming home? Okay. Yeah. So he made this movie called Morgan Stewart's coming home. And this is a movie that I really wish I could get on DVD, but the rights are kind of up in the air because I believe it has, um, Tangerine Dream did the uh, soundtrack for it. And that's caused a lot of people problems in the past trying to acquire movies. So it's it's a movie about a dude named Morgan Stewart. He's been in boarding school for seven years, and he's played by John Cryer in the movie. The reason why I bring this up, though, is because this is pretty wild. He is a George Romero super fan. In the movie, he has a Day of the Dead t-shirt, and at one point goes to meet George Romero in the movie. Uh, so oh, it's wow. just, it's a totally that. random thing in the movie. Like he's like obsessed with horror movies and stuff. And and that's just like a side plot of his character. And I haven't seen this movie since the VHS days. So I'm dying to watch it again. And it's just, but there's, it's nowhere. It's like, it's, it's a movie that's very difficult to track down. So you know, I'd like to get my hands on a copy so I could watch it again and just kind of revisit it. But I do remember the Romero yeah, stuff, check it. you know, overall. Yeah. But yeah, kind of a weird movie, though. Speaking Force of One um, didn't really hit the marks that I wanted it to. You know, you know what I always say that, Jay, and this might not be this movie's fault, but I at least want a movie to deliver on what it's, you know, showing me it's going to deliver. And I just expected more thinking this was a Chuck Norris movie with a pretty solid uh, surrounding cast, which is still the case, but the action has a lot to be desired uh, or lack of it. I should say. Yeah. We mentioned none, none of the bees or UIC, no boobs, blood or bombs, no UIC unintentional comedy. One of the most intriguing things about it. It's actually the poster 
is like Chuck yeah. Norris in some semblance of a yoga pose, like with a triangle, but it's really dark. It's like a cool looking poster. Uh, Cause yeah, l- looking at it, not really remembering it when we we're getting ready to review it. I'm just thinking as we are thoroughly mentioned in here that it was, you know, some classic seventies, you know, in the eighties action shit with some grittiness. And uh, again, a, P- a legit PG rating here, uh, I think really, uh, affected it but not, nonetheless it was entertaining enough to get through it wasn't like i was like overly bored uh, like i said i felt some some sympathy f- for the son character and things like that what happens to him and, and norris gets all pissed and, and as always the uh, end fight scene lives up to it you know he goes one-on-one with the bad dude and it works out oh this also uh has a pretty good tagline too. the jay yeah it does he hears the silence he sees the darkness he's the only one who can stop the killing a force of one. Yeah, that just totally gives off vibes of an R-rated kick-ass Chuck Norris flick, but unfortunately it just yeah. doesn't reach that that you know plateau, I guess. Um, so as you guys know, we do five-star rating scale on this one. Unfortunately, this week, I'm gonna give it two stars. Yep, we're we're pretty cohesive this week. Hey, y'all, two stars from the J. So that's not it uh in the world of Thursday Night Prime. We will return next week with a brand spanking new episode uh, with none other than Chuck Bronson from 1986. This one's Murphy's Law. So we're going to take a look at that one next week on episode 63. So we are going to take a quick commercial break. And of course, when we come back, we're going to do some show wrap up and we're going to talk some goofs as well. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real podcast. What would dad do? Suppose dad was going to create the greatest hangout spot in the world. Would he have more than 100 craft beers? Check. Hard to find sweet seasonal brews on tap? Check. Juicy burgers seasoned with goodness and grilled to perfection? Check. Signature dogs and beloved favorites on the menu? Check. Comfortable for friends and family, even your little brother? Check. Welcome to dad's. Well, that's what Dan, Steve, and Eric set out to do. Of course, the trio had spent some quality years working together at a certain hot dog and beer joint in Monroeville. That's when they came to the conclusion that they could shape a bar and restaurant with the beer they love, the food they love, and the people love they hang out with. So, Dad's was born. In its first year, Dad's has become a favorite hangout for many who stumbled in for the very first time. We hope to be your favorite spot, too. Check us out on the web at dadspub.com. Give us a call at area code 412 856-5666 located at 4320 Northern Pike Monroeville and 1050 Brayton Avenue Pittsburgh PA that's dads hey everybody this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs are Goofs and we're back and that's right the J what do we got this week on the goof front the What's Real podcast, hey, Ed, so you know we are filled with goofs. This is one of our trifecta weeks. We got a trifecta of goofs and goofs in the Goofs or Goofs segment, three of them on uh, episode 62 here. And we're starting with something I sent you that I thought was pretty cool, actually. It was something I stumbled upon on the Twitter, and it was part of the historical artifacts page where they found a Siberian unicorn. An Alice Martha extinct 39,000 years ago. 
Hey, uh, and if you see the picture of this, we'll have to try to put it on the Twitter if the JA cam or Hey Ilt ever remember. And I think Hey Ilt's still the only one with the passcodes on our Twitter. But nonetheless, the Siberian unicorn was was pretty wild looking, almost like a, a woolly mammoth with a humongous horn. Uh, once again, some shit in real life that supposedly existed that looked like it could be straight out of Lord of the Dude, Rings. Now, this thing has me thinking, right? Like what the hell kind of body does this thing have to where it can hold up this fucking tusk like on its head? Cause it, yeah, dude, it's, that horn is it's, huge. So like, dude, this thing had to have like crazy muscles in its neck and back and shit. So that it doesn't basically cripple itself. I wonder if, yeah. uh, but I wonder if like, were they all like that? Or was this one like, just like a big one, you know what I mean? Like, would every one of them yeah, look this like, is like a particular? Yeah, one. like maybe this was like the king of its fucking species or something. I don't know. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it lives thirty nine thousand years ago. Hey, yeah, we're not know. going that far Never back know. in time. Fuck that. But of course, Twitter's uh, and the internet is undefeated. As uh, there's like a close up of the picture that they they posted of the Siberian unicorn, and of course, there's some goof in a leather jacket completely ignoring it. And the the caption says, "Never mind that. What's going on with that man bear beaver over there?" <laughs> <laughs> Remember, because you know how people are. They see this fucking amazing looking thing, and it's like, "Oh, look at that little weird cute." Beaver. Remember the. Uh what is it? The man, the man, bear pig, the man, bear pig. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and as another user said, Hey, you know, unicorns are defined to be real. They made. So that is the Siberian unicorn here making uh goofs or goose. And who else to make goofs or goose next? Hey, you know, but one of your favorites, Trey songs, oh. as he made it on TMZ this week, uh, as he was spitting into uh, two women's mouths. Uh, <laughs> I knew I knew you were grossed out by that, so I had to throw it on here. Uh, Trey Songs um, doing a new music video. It looks like it appears to be a set, but I guess he doesn't care about COVID because he's just straight up hawkering. Dude, I was gonna say, could you imagine being like one of the video chicks? And it's like, so we're working with Trey Songs. Say, like, yeah, get over there, and uh, you're, what you're gonna do? You're just gonna kneel down and let him spit in your mouth. Like even normally that's pretty terrible, but like right now it's like, how bad did you need the money from this fucking thing? Yeah. Uh, cue the comments. Hey, y'all. There are some proud parents out there celebrating their daughter's accomplishments. <laughs> <laughs> and the next one. All right. Cancel culture. Do your thing. And that is when cancel culture actually can work. Cause Trey song spitting into two women's mouths is not what you want to see every day. Ugh. <laughs> and we're going to round out Goose or Goose episode 66 with Miss Bum Bum Brazil. Hey, you as Miss Bum Bum Brazil ass advertising for COVID vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> the stars of Brazil's 2021 Miss Bum Bum competition Ms. are trying Bum to draw Bum. attention to the. Imp- <laughs> They're trying to draw attention to the importance of getting vaccinated by drawing even more attention to their assets. The Curry V candidates have tattooed their booties and buttholes with vaccinate here. I don't think they understand. Like, I don't think that's necessary. Nobody has to stick a vaccine up your asshole. (laughs) Well, it's just funny because it's part of an initiative put in place by the organization running the contest. So they like bring the girls in like, all right, here's what we're doing with your butts. Get your buttholes out. (laughs) Ladies, get your buttholes Um, out. We want 
our vaccine in the butt. We want everyone to be vaccinated, says the candidate. Well, you remember the song, don't you? <laughs> what, what? Vaccinate the butt. What, what? <laughs> Wait, the-, the women buying for the title of Brazil's most beautiful butt are urging fans to get their shots. <laughs> Oh, I thought it should, it should have been like they're urging fans to take their shots. And it's like, yeah. oh, come on, guys, if you girl. ever want to bang her, it's time to take your shot, pal. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 this is vaccine related. Uh, That's not even the same. Uh, this year marks the 10th anniversary of the popular beauty contest, which is interestingly enough, hey, it's still happening amid the pandemic with 27 contestants to start. All I know is as soon as uh, travel restrictions open up, I think we need to go cover the Miss Bum Bum com- uh, competition next year. What's real live at Miss Bum Bum Brazil contest? For it's sure. hey Ed and the J uh, only- live here at Miss Bum Bum 2022. <laughs> uh, don't forget Cam will be there as well. You know, we're bringing the camster to Miss Bum Bum. But yeah, only only 15 will make it to the final round. Hey, Ed, a live event to be held in July when the new Miss Bum Bum will be crowned. And vaccinated, hopefully. Okay, so I have one that I don't even know if you've seen this yet, but I have to bring I, I have say, to yeah. bring this up. I sent it over. I don't know if you had a chance to watch the video. Did you see the video of the ESPN host getting crushed by the set wall? Oh yes, I had that on. So good. Holy shit! This is the most violent thing I've ever seen ever. Like. So my question on it was, what was the aftermath? Like, did oh, he, he's like, dead. Break his ribs? No, he's dead. No, he's I'm dead? <laughs> I was going to say. He's, I mean, nothing surprises well, dude, me nowadays. This is more surprising. He's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No broken ribs or I think anyway. it would have been less surprising if I would have found out he was cut in half and bled to death right there on site. Because, th- I mean, dude, <laughs> ho- I watched this the first time I saw this shit. Well, you got to explain it real okay. quick on the on the pod so, here because who's going to see the Twitter? Basically, the know. way that it is is on ESPN, usually they have like a desk set up and there's TVs and stuff behind them. And that's like they have the stuff behind them. So these guys are talking like they normally do. And on the one side of the table, this entire wall falls and crushes this dude. And I mean, it looks like like you ever seen a movie when they have a scene like this? It's like you could tell it's like a, a dummy that like just get like oh they change yeah that's, that's what, what it looks like but it's a human I being. thought it might have been fake initially no yeah, like it it's, was just dude yeah it's legit I, the reason this is the main reason why I knew it was real because the first time I heard about this I seen it on like the world news so I'm like there was no joking and, they were like he is okay like I'm like it sure don't look like it because I mean yeah because like with so many things like this, the reaction of the host and the well, camera just pans onto the host. They won't show him. He's like looking like dude, <laughs> he, he just saw his co-host die in front of him. Some, I saw somebody posted this. It was like they did it with text, but it had like a picture of the dude and it's like wall falls. And he's like, they show the guy like looking over and it's like, is he dead? Is he dead? Is he dead? Is he dead? Okay, everybody, we'll be back right after this quick short break. Like, because <laughs> yeah. that's the dude has to totally play it off on top of it. And it's like the only thing that, that even remotely saves it is like there's not people like running through the camera shot and screaming like you would assume they would be. 
Or, or classically, it didn't go to like, we'll be right back with like this oh, like, screenshot. Like, but yeah, most likely, hey, Ed, the, the host was like, and now let's go to Shaquille O'Neal with Icy Hot, which I bring up because breaking news, goofs or goofs segment here. Shaquille O'Neal told a hilarious story recently on the Conan O'Brien contest, exp- or I'm sorry, <laughs> podcast, explaining that his first experience with Icy Hut is something he will literally never oh, forget. God. He was forced to leave an NBA game early after a team trainer used the blue gel too high when treating an injured leg. I always used to see Icy Hut in the locker room. One day I kind of had a thigh bruise and the guy rubbed it, but he rubbed it too high. During the game, my balls started getting hot, like really hot, like I thought I was, something was wrong. So he left the game with intense pain and said, man, I need a doctor. My little guys are on fire. He, <laughs> so. he, he left the game because of great balls of fire. <laughs> <laughs> you, I, I set him up. That's what I'm down. here for. But, up, up. but between Siberian unicorns, Trey songs, just completely ignoring COVID-19 TMZ with Miss Bum Bum Brazil Crushed ESPN hosts and Shaquille O'Neal burning his nuts. Goofs are goofs. Oh, oh shit! Man. So that's the delirious. That thing. is almost it for us this week. So we normally do this at the beginning of the show, but I'm gonna slide one in here towards the end. The J sneaker check time. What's real sneaker check? So we had a nice day here in Pittsburgh. It was like about 60 degrees or so. It was a good day to pull out some sneakers, man. What did you have on foot today? Today, hey, you know, I actually had on the 21s, the black and with the, the bit of purple. Okay. Did it just come out recently? Yep. So, because I haven't worn those in a while. And I just, uh, you know, after my appointments, I didn't wear them to my my work stuff. But uh, yeah, I just had to run out. I'm like, you know, I'm going to take them for a test run. You know, we talked about that, man. It's like nice days in Pittsburgh. You got a little thing to do. When, when else can you wear your kicks and you know, you're not going to fuck them up and you can just at least throw them on. So the 21s, man, I, I love those too. Those are another pair that's growing on me. So back at you. Hey, you sneaker check to your I ass. actually decided to undead stock a pair. Uh, and I went with the uh, reverse bread Jordan one lows that I bought last year. And dude, Ooh, nice. it's crazy. I don't know if you if you ever have this experience with Jordan sometimes. So it's like you'll have a pair and you like you see them, you know, they're either on your shelf or in a box or something. So like, you know what they look like. Right. But like then when you put them on and you look at them, you're like, they kind of look different. And I mean that usually in a good way. No, I, yeah, I but it's just I don't know if it's yeah, the yeah. on foot thing, if it's the you know the angle you're looking at. But I was like, dude, yeah, I, angles, yeah. Stats. I obviously like the shoes because I bought them, but just wearing them today, I was like looking at them at one point. I'm like, fuck, I love these things. You know, they're in the OG Bulls colors, which you know, obviously I like my colorful stuff, but like you really can't go wrong with any Jordan. Doesn't matter which one in OG colorways and stuff like that. So. I'm really happy I got those and it was kind of cool to keep them on ice for so long and then finally wear them like you feel like it's an accomplishment like you know what I mean like I've had these in, this, on ice for a year you know what I mean like yep. finally yeah it's out. like no more dead nice to see that purchase from a year ago <laughs> finally coming into play <laughs> yeah 
So yeah, man, good call on the sneaker. Can't lose on a warm day with the sneaker check. So that's about it for us this week, guys. Here on the show, hope you enjoyed episode sixty-two of the What's Real podcast, especially as much as we enjoy doing it. The Jay, hear you revving it up, brother. So take it away. Revving it up. Hey, Eon, on a national holiday, I'll go away from the microphone so I don't blow your ears out. Give me a, oh, hell yeah. yeah. 316, baby. Love the show. To the wizard behind the boards, our producer, the man, Cam. Keep doing your thing, Cam. Love the AK sound. Loving it. Hey, Eon, we're Steve McQueen in it, man. The great escape from pandemic living. Love doing this with my brother from another mother. Closing in on three hours with your ale. But love it every every second of it. Hey, you know, as I always say, especially in these days and times, we're hopefully closing in on getting out of this, folks. Just keep doing what we're doing. Let's be keep being patient. We're almost there. And with those words, stay safe, stay healthy. You'll hear the J next week. So that's it for us here this week on episode 62. Thanks to Jay for sitting down with me as we do here every week. Brothers, nobody else I'd rather do it with. So thank you for doing this with me. Each and every Tuesday, as you guys listen on Friday and beyond. Uh, also, big shout out and thanks to our producer, uh, the wizard behind the boards himself, because, you know, nobody does it better than the Wiz. So uh, shout out to Cam. Appreciate all the work you put into the show. That's it for us here on episode 62. Hope you guys join us next week for episode 63 and all the fun stuff we have planned there. So that's it, guys. Stay safe. Stay healthy, and we'll see you right here next week on the What's Real Podcast. What's real?